the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio is on the air. What is at eye level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. And now the moment you've all been waiting for. Guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host Lewis Paul as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight, for way back in the days of silent film, two of the four Shore brothers, Run Run and Run May to be precise, turned an unspectacular business concern into the greatest of all Asian action film companies. Rival only much later and to a far lesser degree by Raymond Chow's Golden Harvest, Shore productions were known for their revolving cast, stunning sets, and costumery, and over-the-top mixtures of myth, fantasy, and horror with some fairly grounded martial arts technique, with both barehanded and exotic weapons fighting coming into play. From core directors like horror experts Ho Meng Wah, Chi Heng Kuei, and the gothic-leaning swordplay of Chu Yuan, We'll proceed to the true masters of the genre, graceful fight coordinator come director Lao Karlung, and the incomparable father of heroic bloodshed, Chang Che. Join us as we talk everything from Wang Yu and David Chang to T-Lung and the Venoms, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. And I'm getting distracted by my wife's Wegaman music I wasn't expecting to hear. <laughs> and, and my cat screaming because she didn't want to go off the chair before. So, <laughs> so uh, my co-host, Louis Paul. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so were the cats kung fu fighting? Yeah, well, you know the uh, well, not all this, but the um, the one I've had longer of the two girls, uh, you know, my little princess there. She's a torty, and anybody that has a torty knows exactly what tortitude's all about. And she did not like the fact that she was sitting in my chair, and I had to kind of scoot her out as we went on air. So anybody that heard that was her putting up her defiance. Um, oh, I thought I thought it was like from one of the classic Shaw Brothers, you know, like the, uh, <laughs> the flying wisp of the cat yow. 
<laughs> you never know, especially with Bruce Lee making all those crazy noises he made. Uh, of course, Bruce was not a star. Yeah. He was actually the guy that made uh, Raymond Chow famous in the first place with Golden Harvest. And, you know, there are people that I would have liked to have touched on that surprisingly turned out to have done nothing for Shaw Brothers, like, um, you know, Angela Mao Ying, for example. Uh, you know, there are a lot of films out there that were made later and that became famous afterwards that, you know, did not fall under the Shaw Brothers umbrella. But basically, everybody is thinking, okay, here's a classic kung fu film that doesn't involve Bruce Lee and that doesn't involve Angela Mao Ying. This, it, Shaw Brothers, is, that's where it's, you get them well, from. This is... Okay. This is our first. This is our first. I think our first uh, Asian-oriented Asian genre uh, thing solely. And uh, you know, who knows in the future what you know what lies ahead? Uh, you know, maybe we'll do Asian action, Asian chicks with guns. That was very popular. Michelle Yeoh was a big star. Uh, since yeah, and you know me, I I would love to do some Nakatsu stuff. I mean, I interviewed Cynthia Rothrock. Anybody's interested, uh, you can go check out that one on uh, Third Eye from a couple years back. Uh, nice girl. I'm still in contact with her. Um, we, we are so, doing a Nakatsu show, aren't we? Yes. We talked about it. I wasn't sure if you ever agreed to it or not. But it's oh, not we didn't this season. Okay. We were still talking okay. stuff, and there are ideas floating around. Actually, you had kicked around a long time the idea of doing a Eurospy, and I had said that, you know, I don't have that many in my collection. Uh, and, you know, I'd seen these things way in the past, the ones I did. Lately, I've been taking out Eurospy stuff, so we're going to do that as well. Uh, so, you know, yeah, more to come after season three. Eurospy. We're not dying out after this. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. We, we, we're, no we're, 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 we're definitely got a lot of shows. We're, we're booked up until mid-April with season three. With season three, yeah. yep. And yep. we have plenty of ideas already, like, on the table here for season four. You know, we didn't even get to. Um, oh yeah, I would. And speaking of Asian films, I would love to. I would love to do the heroic. Uh, you know, at some point, whether it's season four or five, you know, the heroic bloodshed, the whole John Woo thing. You know, when yeah. people like him, Johnny Toe. Uh, Johnny Toe is great. Uh, so, but yet tonight we're talking Shaw Brothers, and uh, I don't know what you have in your mind. Um, <laughs> I never do, <laughs> but. Uh, I thought it would be interesting um, if we began with how each one of us uh, uh, was uh, introduced to these Oh, kind of like when we did the anime show. All right. Yeah. Actually, before we get on that, I wanted to say one thing. I've been saving this for a couple of days. Um, After we did the Edgar Wallace show a few weeks back, uh, I had mentioned to you, and probably on air as well, that my wife was a huge Edgar Wallace fan as well. I introduced her to these films many years ago, back in the VHS days, and it's one of her favorite things after you know anime and Godzilla films. Um, so, and of course, punk rock, but that's another story. Uh, so, we were talking about this, and I'm like, you know, like we had said on air, this really didn't bring too many of these over here on DVD. You know, Retro Media brought over a couple. You know, there's a one-off here and there from somebody like Dark Sky or whatever. But then there was nothing. And, you know, VHS is kind of by the <laughs> by the wind. I know some like hipster millennials are really into reviving it, but it was a crap format that served its purpose, but it's long dead. And, yeah. you know, we really don't even have a VHS player anymore. I think like Christmas time once a year we pull out some of the old tapes just to check out weird stuff that, you know, will no longer kind of be aired because nobody believes in the holidays anymore. And, uh, you know, it's never been on DVD because, you know, it's usually from uh, public access or, uh, you know, local, what do you want to call them, public TV stations and things like that. 
but basically, that's the only time of year we ever touched this crap. So I went and gave in because she was so interested in this. I was like, all right, let me go and find and went back to something weird. I had to do a few from even our, you mentioned your pal Sinister, and we picked up the collection again. So we've been systematically going through the uh, Edgar Wallace movies. I think we're up to the uh, Curse of the Yellow Snake. So I guess it's about 10 movies in, somewhere around there. Uh, you know, being retromedia, being a few of them, therefore we've got some Brian Eggers that were thrown in, a couple that were out of order. But basically, we've been going in order here. And just to make the point that nobody is infallible, I found something really funny uh, when I hit the Avenger. Uh, and I'm just going to read it to you. It says, Scotland Yard investigates a series of murders via decapitation on a movie set in this creepy thriller, the first film in the German-produced series of black-and-white thrillers based on stories by the prolific British author Edgar Wallace. Heinz Drache and Klaus Kinski also appeared together in the Indian Scarf, The Door, Seven Locks, The Squeaker, and Psycho Circus, uh, by which I think you mean uh, Circus of Fear. Uh, yeah. And... You know, guess who wrote this backing? Uh, but tell me what the problem with that uh, paragraph was. <laughs> it's that it says it's the first film in the German series of creeds based on Edgar Wallace. It's actually the third. Uh, it's after Fellowship of the Frog and uh, Crimson Circle. So. Oh, oh, is that one of the ones I wrote? Well, you, you, you probably will, if you're getting the DVDs, there's probably, I know I wrote a lot of those. Well, yes, no one is infallible, and and um, and I'm sure this was a long freaking time ago. Who knows? Maybe it was the first one you got to see. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> well, it's probably, well, yeah, yeah, I know different now. I mean, if you guys listen to our show, you know we got it right. Uh, well, yeah, I that's also. That. No, go ahead, fish up. <laughs> well, no, uh, you know, it's in the early days of research too. That was yeah. done back in. Oh, well, before VHS. the VHS days. That was when you had to yeah. go from books and everybody had you know, wrong information and, you know, God knows what else. Uh, but, you know, I just thought I'd bring it up because I found it and I was like, you know what, I've got to run space in it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you listen to uh, the show, a lot of the things that I was saying about the Edgar Wallace, even though in general they're correct, uh, having seen these again after so many years, I'm like, okay, well, this film was a lot better than I remembered it and this one wasn't quite as good as I remembered it and – Oh, we're plagued by dead space again, folks, but I'm sure he'll come right back. He was talking about the Edgar Wallace films. We did the Edgar Wallace show recently, and um, he uh, was so enthralled with the idea, he uh, purchased a bunch of them, and a bunch of them I had actually written the copy, the ad copy on the back of the uh, Something Weird DVDs. Hey, Lisa. Um, so... Uh, uh, yeah, it's our Shore Brothers show, but uh, he wanted to make the point that uh, uh, that uh, he was rewatching these since our show. I think it's a cool thing about our show that when we do these things, that not only do we go back to the movies, we research as much as possible. We do. I can't even give you the amount of shows. This is uh, what he calls season three and. Uh, just like Doctor Who. <laughs> and um, we have been uh, just going through a bunch of genre stuff. The first the first season, we did a lot of, you know, we did Everybody Big, Joe D'Amato, Argento, Franco, which was three shows, of course, 200-plus films. Um, and we've got a lot coming up that's going to be really interesting uh, this season. Uh, we also covered, we did a whole show on Bond movies, which was funny. And fun, and um, so we've got a lot of 
things on the table. Um, what else have we done recently was uh, just a plethora of stuff. We did a big uh, remembrance show of, of musicians and, and uh, entertainment people we lost in January alone, which actually wound up being the majority of our David Bowie tribute show. So I, I, I highly recommend people check that out. Uh, there was a lot of interesting uh, talk yeah, between uh, Doc and I about uh, Bowie. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of good stuff. We really miss him. I still miss him. And uh, um, I'm waiting for him to come back on because he's the huger of eye of the Shore Brothers fans. And uh, as I kill time, <laughs> um, talking about our Shore Brothers show, I will begin. Um, the first time I saw Shore Brothers, like everyone, it was a uh, cut English language versions on uh, American television. They were cut a lot, you know, for violence even back then, late late night or early morning TV. But we're talking the seventies, folks. But they were few and far between. This is before kung fu theater and all these weird things that people would see later on in the eighties and nineties, and probably even today. Um, when I was younger, I would say the mid to late seventies it started. I would go down to Times Square, Forty Second Street, the Deuce, uh, New York City. And and we all know the the theater showed exploitation, exploitation, um, crime films, a whole bunch of stuff. And um, there were some theaters: the Victory on the far right, uh, nearest to Seventh Avenue, and the Selwyn, a little further down. They were doing a lot of kung fu movies. And at that time, I think for two and a quarter, two fifty, two seventy five, you were able to three, if not more, Kung Fu flicks. Now, some of the stuff was bottom barrel, and some of the stuff was repeats. You know, you would see One-Armed Executioner, the very, very popular uh, Five Fingers of Death, with that crazy theme from Ironside, the Raymond Burr TV show. Um, and a bunch of shit nobody ever heard of. So, you know, you plunk down your $2 and change, and you would sit down, and it was really cold movie theater, and it was suspect. It's 42nd Street. It's the deuce, you know, and uh, so, you know, <laughs> you're back. I, so, I yeah. don't know what the hell happened. I bounced out again. I figured it was blog talk, and it's like, are you there? And who's offline? And then, uh, once again, it was in airplane mode, so I don't know what happened there. Uh, loads of fun. Well, anyway, I... I, I've been killing time by uh, entertaining people by uh, um, telling them when I first went down to the Deuce to see uh, triple bills and quadruple bills of, of Hong Kong films, right. uh, Shaw Brothers type stuff, and uh, I was about to, uh, yeah I was I was in the middle of saying um, so for two dollars and change you would see three three movies sometimes four, so conceivably you can get into the theater. On 42nd Street, uh, 10.30, 11 o'clock in the afternoon, and you wouldn't leave till 8 o'clock at night. It was crazy. Yep. It was crazy. <laughs> um, much later, um, I've already seen these things on TV. They've already started appearing on VHS, you know, your mom and pop stores. Much later, I actually did go to New York's Chinatown 
There were three theaters. There was the Delancey on Delancey Street, the Music Palace, and there was the other one I wish John Donson could help. The Sun Sing, which was really creepy. That Is was that the one that's the by, the, uh, by the Brooklyn Bridge? No, that was the Music Palace. Okay. The Sun, the Sun Sing was the one that was under the Manhattan Bridge, under a mall. And all the theaters were really cold. I'm talking cold. <laughs> so you would hear, like, the beginning's emphysema getting around. <coughs> the, the strange thing is, back in those days, uh, we're talking, uh, let's say, 88 to 92 is when I was going a lot. Uh, there, it was soy milk, prawn chips, and strange shit. So, like, if you wanted to munch, it was like, you know, buy something on Canal Street. Buy some, like, uh, 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 pork buns or red bean buns, red bean paste buns, or, you know, bring a sandwich. It was that kind of thing. But um, otherwise, you're at, <laughs> what am I going to eat here? You know, I actually like prawn chips there. I was going to say, prawn chips are great. <laughs> well, or shrimp chips, first, if you find them in the store sometimes. <laughs> yeah, shrimp chips, yeah, well, that's what they are, but... Yeah, but, uh, but you have to, you know, if you don't know what you're eating, man. Anyway, these were very cold theaters uh, year-round. and uh, But you would see the most amazing stuff because this was in the original Chinese. Um, uh, more often than not, things were uh, shown in Cantonese with English subtitles right. and sometimes with Mandarin subs below that. Or, if they were shown in Mandarin, it was English subs with Cantonese subtitles below that. And if you were very unlucky, and there, on occasion I was, um, one main feature, it was like double features almost always, one main feature had subs. The second three days, right? That's how many days? Okay. Sorry, I was talking to my wife or something. <laughs> Many things going on at once here. I see. Yeah, so anyway, it was like really, really cool. It was really creepy. I actually, I thought the the Chinese theaters were creepier experience than the deuce. Really? <laughs> Why? Why, you say? Why, you say? Because even the deuce, you had trannies, you had... You had, you know, blowjobs being given in the streets, you had, <laughs> in the seats. You had, you had, yeah, I've seen shit. You had people throwing stuff. I've seen that, too. You know, 42nd Street beat is right. You know, uh, Bill Landis was right. There was strange stuff going on in 42nd Street. But in Chinatown, it was like, I remember, I'll never it was the winter. I was seeing a great double bill of something. And I went, and I said, I have to go to the bathroom. So I went, yeah. the bathroom is always behind the screen. And you go there, it was like some weird movie. There were all these older Asian men standing around, just staring. Not like they were waiting, <laughs> but they were just staring. I'm like, okay, let me take a piss and leave. And it was very strange, very strange. I uh, thought you were going to say that you went in during, I remember the late 80s, early 90s, when the ghost shadows were having that turf war. There was, there was an effectively yeah. a tongue war between the local gangs there. Uh, and it was pretty dicey to go into Chinatown. I mean, I did, but, yeah, you had to kind of watch your ass. So I, I wonder if that's well, what you're going with this. Well, around, well, well, yeah, I, I, that's where I'm going with 
<laughs> yeah, and around that time, because I was going so often, I, I got the balls up to go into, I'm going to join a Chinese video store. And actually, while I'm joining, like four or five of them. Some of them were, were called UE, which was like the main TV station, but they had videos from everywhere. You actually found Joe Diamano stuff there. It was pretty wild. Why? I don't know. But um, <laughs> there, there were Joe Diamano films there. Um, a lot of the costume thing, the costume porn stuff he was doing, that that was there. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I joined a video store. I actually had a, a Chinese girlfriend at the time, so she would go with me, made it a little easier, of course, just like... You know, who's this Guaylo? You know, Guaylo was like <laughs> my you know, ghost. You know, my ghost. And I, I, I seen some. You know, we talk about dicey. I saw, I saw aftermaths of things. I see people running. I see some blood. I see people that look like they were stabbed. Um, I was told to not go down a block like Van Dam was dicey and Bayard. At one time, you couldn't go down. Now there's like Americanized clubs there. The fam. <laughs> Things are different. Yeah, that's but, sure. yeah, was, you know, but the movie going experience, it, you know, it took me from, you know, TV, what I could find on VHS, which I had mentioned while you were off air, to go to the, the Deuce, to go to Chinatown. Right. And then it got so cool. And Chinese, Chinese video stores were great because it was like, you would go, I, was there a joining fee? I don't remember. But it was like, you give them $4.00. They'll give you eight VHS tapes. One to yep. these knee back. Huh? What do you mean? <laughs> oh, okay. I'll bring it back whenever. And I figured they probably thought I was crazy because two days later I'm bringing these eight tapes back. Can I get eight <laughs> more? You would go through these books. And let me tell you, it was difficult because these books were thick. There were so many of them. And it was either if I felt like horror or martial arts. Or, you know, heroic bloodshed, which I mentioned before. And I said, you know what? Let me start with as much martial arts. And I saw so much stuff uncut. Or, you know, this is like what they're seeing. You know, so it was really great. And that's, that's my, my, uh, my uh, exposure, my initial exposure to these movies. Mine is nowhere near that good. I mean, if you're talking about the Hong Kong stuff that came around that time that you were seeing this stuff, you know, in the, I mean, okay, yeah, they really did it back to the mid '80s, late '80s, early '90s. But I was involved with that scene, you know, when I, the big Hong Kong cinema, wire, wire foo, um, you know, John Woo, uh, you know, Jet Li, Jackie Chan, all that shit but that was this, coming over the time. It was the older stuff I was seeing too, though. Yeah, it was the okay. older stuff. They were showing older movies. Yeah. Because that stuff there, uh, yeah, I was like kind of on the street level for that. And therefore, I would go into these video stores and I'd be like the only white face there. Or later on, when I got involved with my wife, then, you know, we would go to places like you're talking about. And you're right. You would give them something. I think the one place we went to, we had to give them 20 bucks. But you just take them out by the dozen and they were like, you know, a dollar a piece or nothing. And then you bring them back when the hell you felt like it, got another batch, and you kept going yeah. and going and going until eventually it was like, okay, I think we're, we cleared out what they've got. I give them my 20 bucks back, and they're like, okay, whatever, get back to you, you're done. Uh, and they have like a little book that they wrote in, like a handwritten spiral notebook. They're like, oh, yeah, here, account number, whatever. 
<laughs> and you know all that shit you're talking about that guaylo guaylo i mean i even got that in restaurants and the the um racism thing goes both ways we had a lot of that shit especially in those days uh coming just yeah. as much from going into chinatown if not more so than we did going into you know white districts or you know black areas or whatever the hell else uh it was pretty bad all over uh, but in terms of the films themselves, I mean, talking about actual old classic kung fu films, I grew up on that shit uh, because they were already playing them on, you know, Channel Five on Saturdays and Channel Eleven on Saturdays and Sundays, and they yeah, played I on, on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Channel Nine maybe even, uh, you know, then I think Nine started showing Bruce Lee films later on. Uh, there was USA was showing them. TBS, I think it was because we didn't have TNT yet. It didn't exist. Uh, but TBS was showing them. You know, there was all these kung fu theaters and whatever the hell. I don't know. They, they had different names for each one. Uh, but my favorite ones were the ones they showed on Channel 5 on Saturday afternoons. They would play like two of them in a row usually. And yes, they would always say edited for television, uh, which meant that they cut out all the, you know, the Chang Che gore. But ostensibly they were pretty decent you know for the video age you know when they didn't mind and they allowed that pan and scan back and forth kind of stuff they were pretty good prints uh i actually still have a couple of my favorites on vhs as one tape and they really look kind of decent i mean they're almost dvd quality for compared to stuff from that period um so yeah i mean i grew up in this stuff i mean if any of my pals from high school are listening, they're going to know it right away because I was always, you know, doing the, the dubbing uh, thing where, you know, the lips would be moving like crazy. But then, you know, they'd say like five words like, ha, you kill my brother. I'll get my revenge. And, you know, your mouth is going nuts and like back and forth all the time. I can do that. I do that as a joke uh, just because I watch so much of this stuff. Uh, you know, one guy actually like wrote on, I don't know, his locker or something like that. It's like, oh, yeah, bad kung fu theater with my name. You know, it's like because it was always about that. Um you know, in terms of finding them in stores, that was a little tougher because when we got to video, not too much Shaw Brothers came over. You got more stuff like, uh, I mean, that was later with the Wu-Tang Clan, but, you know, all that kind of shit that Xenon was putting out. Like, oh, Wu-Tang this and Wu-Tang Fist, and they kept renaming everything. And it was all like, you know, Carter Wong and, uh, you know, films that were iffier, of much lesser quality. Uh, not really Shaw Brothers. I mean, I found a couple of things. I found a copy of the Savage Five, and you know, I don't know what the hell it was, like dollar video or something once, but that was kind of late, and it was frustrating because I had to go back to my old TV VHSs, which were, you know, okay, yes, I had my four favorite films on there for sure, but mostly you couldn't find the damn things, and I was like, well, I got all this other junk that I'm seeing, you know, these half-assed kung fu movies, this, you know, all the the wirefu stuff that came later. I was like, you're never gonna find the originals. And all of a sudden, sometime in, I'm going to have to guess it was around 2005, 2006, uh, Celestial, uh, who owned the Shaw Library, finally you know, opened up their vaults and put out – I think they said there's like 800 Shaw films in total. I don't know if that's true. Uh, and they released supposedly about 200 of them uh, on Region 3 you know, DVDs over there, you know, VCDs and DVDs. I have one or two of those. You know, they look okay, but obviously they're just in Cantonese, which, you know, it's I'm I'm used to uh, I actually said Mandarin. I'm used to Cantonese from watching all the uh the nineties stuff. And it's a different even though it's kinda of guttural and whatever, it's a different experience than listening to that shish 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 wish 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 stuff of Mandarin. I do not like the Mandarin Chinese language. It's kinda I don't know, it, it grates on my nerves somehow. And, you know, even my wife, you know, she prefers the Cantonese as well. That's what was spoken in her home and everything else. Uh so you know, I wasn't too happy with those. I didn't get too many of them. 
And then very recently, like all of a sudden, first you had Media Blasters put out a couple, you know, maybe like a handful, some of which were like some of the best ones, but it was only a couple. Um, I think BCI put out a few. Uh, Image put out you know, more than a handful. And Dragon Dynasty put out, in the middle of doing all these Warifu and 90s type stuff, uh, they would drop you know, Shaw Brothers titles here and there. And by the end of it, once you get to this current day, uh, minus some things that went out of print that are really impossible to get, um, most of this stuff is out there, and you can grab it relatively reasonably. Uh, some of it dirt cheap uh, from one of those labels. So uh, I actually did a nice thing where I went and watched, I would say, about 40 or 50 of these Show Brothers films over the last month and a half before even did this show. Uh, you know, Partly just for my own entertainment, like, oh, great, these are out, and I'm enjoying them, and these all work out, and let's get more from the same director kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, so... Basically, uh, unless there's anything else you wanted to say about that end of things, uh, I guess we can get into the company itself. Is there anything well, you wanted? Well, there's a, yeah, yeah. There's a if uh, what bridge is that? The Manhattan Bridge, Manhattan Bridge, Brooklyn Bridge, whichever the, bridge. Right there on Canal Street, you know, it, it's it's Canal Street and like not Broadway. It was Barry. Where, where's that street up there? Uh, it's like the last one you can hit in Chinatown, right where that bridge is. I always thought it was the one going to Brooklyn. Um, well, right whatever there, it goes, it leads yeah. somewhere. There's there's a Buddhist <laughs> temple on the left. Yes. It's actually right where the Music Palace Theater used to be, folks. There's a Buddhist temple right next to the, which is still there. And the reason why I'm bringing this up, there's a small video store, which is actually very deep. It doesn't look very wide on the outside. But they have, they still have VCDs to this day. Yeah. Which is the cheaper versions? And last time I was down there, they were like three dollars. Yes, can you believe it? Yes, dollars. Um, they had a lot of that Shore Brothers stuff that you're talking about. That was Region Three over there. Yep. Um, it was all Region, and it was like three bucks. So I did purchase a bunch of them, and I still have them somewhere. Yeah, VCDs are crappy. You get a lot of the burned-in subtitles with them. The quality's not very good because it's essentially a CD. Uh, sometimes you have yeah. to watch like two of them to watch a movie or three of them to watch a movie. Um, right, correct. Never a fan of them. They, but a lot of those they also release. Okay, you can get the VCDs if you want to be cheap. But you know, for another whatever it was, three or four bucks, you could get the actual DVD. At least where I was getting them at the time. Uh, but there were some things on VCD that were not you couldn't that's find. True. That's true. Some of them never came over. Yeah, it's like why? Why is this okay? Yeah, it's frustrating as hell because even now with like okay, now I've seen a bunch of these things. Like, well, what about this one? What about that one? Where is this? And you know, good luck. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, the bottom line is, um, unless you got anything else you want to hit there, uh, ah. back in 1925, the the company was formed by the original, uh, the older Shaw brothers. You know, Run J, Run May, and Run Day. Um, they had a different name for it. Uh, it was called the Tianyi or the Unique Film Company. Uh, some kind of scam when they were doing it. Part of it was like in, set in Shanghai and in, in China proper, and part of it was over in Singapore. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, what happened is Run Mei and the younger brother, Run Run, they took over and they built into what we know as Shaw Brothers starting in basically 1958. And Sort of ended in 1985, which uh, and they actually closed up shop in '87. I don't know what they were doing. Supposedly they made about a thousand movies. Again, I don't know if I believe that, but whatever. Um, the studio, as we know for Show Brothers, the way we know it, uh, was in Hong Kong itself, uh, someplace called Clearwater Bay. 
And even beyond just having those beautiful sets that you, you know, if, if you're into these things, this is one of the major draws of these beautiful sets. Uh, they also kept, you know, of course, they the business offices, but they had entire blocks that were dedicated solely to apartments for their repertory of actors. So these people, it was like worse than in the old days with MGM and the studio system. They would actually live on site. And, you know, I guess they'd be having romances and doing whatever the hell back and forth, having fights. You know, just daily whatever. It's like a, going away to college, more or less, to be at Shaw Brothers. Um, the earliest one that I have in my collection is something called the Golden Buddha. It's sort of a James Bond, you know, Black Tide Killers, if you've ever seen that. That's sort of a, a spy, drug-busting sort of affair from 1966. Uh, but most people were going to be familiar with the stuff that they produced starting in 67. So basically, I don't know what the hell they were doing for the first you know, 10 or 12 years. Uh, nothing too important. But they started putting out stuff that we know, like Kung Fu was like uh, The One-Armed Swordsman and Cave of the Silken Web, uh, things like that. Um... You know, I actually like some of those Bond type things they were doing. They were, it was very, you know, can I remember uh, uh, one we didn't discuss too much in our Bond show. You only lived twice, right? That was so huge worldwide and as an influence, and it was kind of like uh, they were making even the even the Chinese were making James Bond. <laughs> so yeah, and actually, it's not the, bad. They're not bad. Two or three of them are actually pretty good. I wound up seeing about six, and at some point I was like, eh. But the, I saw two or three that I really liked, and they have them around somewhere. Yeah, I mean, like, something like The Lizard, which came over, that's not that great. But, you know, like, The Golden Buddha wasn't bad. Like I said, it's very Black Tights Killers uh, in that vein. Uh, you know, is this up to Bond? Is it up to even Eurospy? Is it up to, like, Edgar Wallace territory? No. But, you know, it's not bad. Um, so, you know, you had directors that you would recognize that we'll get to afterwards, like Chang Che and Lao Karlong, who's also known as Lucia Lang. You know, Chinese like to do a lot of different names for themselves, and especially if they're trying to westernize. You know, they'd be like Bobby, you know, Chow or something, but it's really Chow spelled differently instead of like, you know, Chow like Chow Main. It's actually C-H-I-A-U. And then his name will really be, you know, whatever it is, Hong Hua or whatever. Um you know, Chur Yuan, who also went by another name, Ho Meng Hua, who you'll recognize as Ho Menga, uh, those of you from the, the VHS days. Uh, these guys were out there making movies for sure already, but the sort of thing that really you know, kicked off the mass craze in the 70s, uh, the, the compliment to black exploitation uh, that was always playing in the grindhouses and the black community really like got into. I mean, I'm sure you remember. I remember from when I was little. Uh, there, you would actually go into urban areas sometimes, and you would see brothers there going around, sometimes even barefoot, in like you know like a chong sam and a big rice paddy hat, you know, like daring somebody to say something, like you're gonna fight them. Uh, it was really a, an interesting. I don't know why they latched onto a lot of people make a lot of theories about it. You know, maybe it's something about because they weren't white and they were empowered. You know, you saw them kicking ass basically. I'm not sure why that connection was there, but it definitely was. Um, but this kind of stuff really kicked off in the mid 70s. Uh, there's good films and awful ones scattered all over the time period, but especially in the early days. But I think the best ones came from four directors. Now, I'm going to talk about a few other folks you know, just in passing that are worth mentioning. Uh, one being King Hu, 
Uh, he directed some of the early classics of the Shaw Brothers films, like Come Drink With Me. Uh, there's two variants of what 90s Hong Kong films know as Dragon Inn. Uh, 1967's Dragon Gate Inn, which is basically the same story. And 1973, which is not the Shaw Brothers, but it's excellent, uh, The Fate of Lee Khan, which is actually out on one of those sets from, I don't know, Shout or something. Uh, very, he, he, very... Actually made, he actually made one of my, my top ten favorite films of all time. Which is? A Touch of Zen. You really like that one? Okay. I mean, I thought I it was really okay. But it wasn't like, okay, <laughs> this is really outstanding. I'm like, all right, you know. Uh, nothing but wrong think, with you it. Know, but, you know, it's like music. Uh, you know, like like your top 20 list and my top 20. These oh, things sure will change. Different. And they change, yeah, like you said. They change all the time. But I, I still like that because it affected me in particular ways for particular reasons. And just like you know, mentioned the top 20 list, you know, I had a couple of people that posted stuff. I'm like, yeah, you know, if I would have thought about it more, if I had another chance, if I was, you know, four hours later, I might have some of the same albums you did. I might have completely different ones. It, it changes. Yeah. You can't really uh, – that's why I always resist the idea. Like, what are your Desert Island discs? Well, at this minute, thinking in this subgenre of this genre, I mean, you know, in the mood that I'm in right at this moment? Yeah, sure. But, yeah, sure. you know, five minutes from now, it might be different. Uh so there's another fellow that is Sun Chung. Uh, he did Human Lanterns, and probably the only truly likable role from this annoying, goofy, chipmunk cheek bastard that everybody always talks great about, Alexander Fu Shang. Uh, and the film that I'm talking about <laughs> is cool. the film that I'm talking about is Deadly Breaking Sword. That is a good film. I, I saw it recently. I'm like. Wow, this is like the only time I really looking you know, bastard. <laughs> he is. That sounds like that sounds like a dub for you chipmunk looking bastard. I will kill you and your two brothers. Him and his pudgy yeah. ass cheeks and like he's always supposed to be the comic relief, but he's not funny. And I was like, oh come on. Uh, but this you, film, you, you, I really you, liked him, man. You know, I I don't want to cut you off, but yeah, you know, this just I just thought of something. Did we discuss the dubbing of these things? <laughs> oh, well, I just barely mentioned about how, you know, I used to do the voices that didn't match what I was saying. You, know, you talk really slow while your lips are moving really fast and going crazy. Um, the dubbing on these, see, that's one of the things that I didn't like about the Region 3s from Celestial. Uh, beyond the fact that it's in Mandarin and not Cantonese, which, you know, again, just kind of rubs me the wrong way. Uh, kind of like when we're talking about the Aussie yeah, accent the that language. I hear in the... It's the wrong language, yeah. Yeah, but when you get to uh, the dubs... You had actually, I think, and that, this isn't studied, but this is just from seeing so many of them. I think they had two main dubbing teams. One of them was actually pretty damn good. And if you leave the subtitles on, on these DVDs, you will see that they're yeah. not that far off. They're pretty accurate. They're they do a decent yeah. job of acting. You know, it's all on point, and you don't really notice too much. Then there's another team that is <laughs> completely laughable, and that's the one everybody remembers. Uh, that's the one who talks like this because... You're just a bastard, and I'm gonna kill you because you took my brother. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. Well, and, 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 I think, crazy. and I think a lot of those, a lot of those, in that particular team too. I think a lot of them were women trying to deep voice themselves too. Is it? Because I know yeah. it's just horrible. Um, but. <laughs> You know, I remember there being more of those kind of movies, which says that on um, you know the kung fu theaters and all that thing, they weren't showing exclusively Shaw Brothers films because I think those right. fell more outside of Shaw. 
which surprised yeah. me. You know, watching all these discs, I'm like, you know, I only ran into that dubbing team maybe, I don't know, let's say 10 times out of, you know, 50 movies. I'm like, and that's even overestimating. It might have been less. So I'm like, okay, well, most of them are actually pretty competent. It was just those guys who really suck. Huh. You're just a dirty bastard. You know, like, and they come up with these crazy insults. Like, where'd they get this from? You know, it, it's just. William Shatner. They got it from William yeah. Shatner, man. Exactly. It's William Shatner-esque, but Shatner with a worse sense of, uh, I guess, sense of humor. I don't know. You, you have to imagine these people are laughing their asses off when they're dubbing these things. Like, Kind of like I tell you, my buddy, the hippie that was doing voice acting, uh, voiceovers, and him and this one girl he knew how to do a porno or a couple of pornos, and they were just kind of like trying not to snicker through the whole thing and putting weird dialogue in there. This is the kind of thing you have to imagine that they're laughing at this crap. Otherwise, you know, there's something wrong with them. I don't know what the hell they do too many drugs. Uh but, like I said, it's not as many as you remember, and colloquially, everybody was going to remember that. Oh, yeah, they're all like that. No, they're not, but there is a team that oh. is that bad. Uh, so then we got a fellow named Chuck Kang. He was a fight coordinator for most of his career, but he eventually directed three films, and the best of them is actually something that's, again, on disc called Shallon Intruders. It's a fun mystery where the Shallon Abbott's actually the evil one for a change. So I thought that was interesting. Um there's also, again, just people that I want to mention in passing. Uh, there's a film directed by somebody named Lu Ching Ku that I always really oh, like. Yeah. It's called uh, Three Evil Masters, which is out on DVD as The Master. Uh, not to be confused with the, the one with Salami in it and uh, Lee Van Cleef, uh, the great American TV series about ninjas. This is actually one well, that's sort of a comedy. It's also a Jet Li, a Jet Li, too, an early Jet Li. Um, while before he came over. Uh, you know, he did a lot of stuff in mainland China, the Shaolin series. And right. then he, the last picture he did before he went to Hong Kong, or maybe, may may have been, I don't know if there was someone like John Charles is listening, he will straighten this out. But I think maybe the first picture he possibly made in Hong Kong, Jet Li made a movie called The Master. And he played this guy. Well, he actually shot in New York. He played. It was sort of like Jackie Chan's Rumble in the Box. You know, this, this, this guy comes over to New York, and, and you know, he's a fish out of water, and uh, you know, doing kung fu, and goes back home. But yeah. uh, uh, but anyway, just this, this one that I'm talking yeah. about. You know, it's it's kind of what you'd expect from the title Three Evil Masters. Uh, these three nasty martial arts experts kill the, the good school's master and terrorize the town until his goofy-ass student, the one that he always rejected because he was a moron, ends up finding some, like, hermit, you know, one of those, like, the Sam Seed type, you know, that they always see in the crappy uh, Wu-Tang movies, uh, who teaches him how to go back and beat him. And I always enjoyed it. It's It's not a fantastic film. But it's kind of template, and I always got a kick out of it. And it's actually one that I've had, you know, on VHS from TV since the '80s. Uh, there is a fellow named Sean Hua who gave us a rather uh, bat without wings like, uh, which we'll talk about later. But even more oh, yeah. spooky horror wuja, which is called Bloody Parrot. This is one of the ones I got from Celestial. Uh, never came over here, you know, with the uh, U.S. DVDs yet. And it's a shame because it's really good. Uh, and the very Japanese, but even more entertaining than Ultraman knockoff Super Inframan, which I'm sure everybody is yeah, familiar with. Yeah, uh, it's so weird, that movie. 
It is. It's crazy. My father used to love that one because yeah, I remember one of the guys. They, they, you know, it's like Ultraman. So there's all these guys with rubber suits popping up, and uh, one of them he says, "Yeah, it's like the friggin' cavity creep." And the other guy looks like the one from the Calgon commercials, <laughs> and he do. There's like a green monster that looks like the, the guy that's in the dishwasher, and the other one looks like a cavity creep. It's it's a ridiculous Ultraman knockoff. I think in a lot of ways it's more fun than Ultraman just because it is you know a Chinese knockoff. So it's going to be all uh, idiosyncratic and screwed up trying to be something that it really doesn't understand, uh, but loads of fun. So, now getting it's past... So, the, like, it's also a little bit more violent, too, I thought. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. I think it's a little more sex, too, if I remember properly. Uh, I thought yeah, the... Uh, sex. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, getting past the guys, I just want to like, quickly pass off. Let's talk a little bit about a fellow named Chu Yuan, who is otherwise uh, known as Chu Yuan, like I talked about before with the double names and triple names. Uh, he was actually a, a master. He's got a spent most of his time doing wuja films. Uh, those of you who don't know what those are, as opposed to the usual kung fu films you're seeing, like the Chang Chais and things like that, these are um, epic sword fight novels that they wrote over in China back, who knows, back in the turn of the century, in the 1600s, what do I know? And they have strong fantasy and occasional horror elements, so they're really visually interesting, uh, and the plots are convoluted as shit. But it can be very entertaining. If you're, if you're in the right mood, if you're into these sort of things, you watch more and you like it, you're probably going to just go grab more. And that's what happened to me. Originally, I was just getting the ones that I knew, the old kung fu movies proper. And I got one or two of these. I'm like, well, this is really good. Okay. And then they mentioned someone else, and I see a trailer. And I was like, oh, that's kind of like this one. Let's give it a shot. And then I started finding, oh, look, all these three were done by Shuri. Let's see what else he did. And I get another one. Oh, that's pretty good. And on and on and on. Um, so... He gave us a couple of good films. I mean, Web of Death, I really liked. Bat Without Wings, I mentioned earlier. A lot of, like I said, fantasy and horror elements into it, more than you would expect. I mean, yes, there is martial arts to this, but these are really, um, we're not going to the wire food thing. It's not cheesy. There's not any real comedy to it. They're almost like po-facedly serious, uh, but very, very visually sumptuous, very cartoony and comic booky. Um his work generally tended to borrow from two Wuxia authors in particular, uh, namely two fellows named Gu Long and Jin Yang. And these were very similar to, but often more entertaining and certainly far less confusing than those four uh, Brave Archer films that Chang Che handled, who was uh, also Wuxia films uh, done by uh, or written by this guy named Zha Lan Long or Lan Yong. Uh, those are. Again, visually sumptuous, but no comparison. Uh, Chang Che's Wuzas are not Chur Yuan's. Chur Yuan was the master of this genre in terms of Shaw Brothers. Really, really good stuff. Um, I don't know. You, you can jump in whenever. I'm just kind of going through the, my notes here. No, no, no. Think it. Think it. Go ahead. Um, I mentioned earlier The Lizard, which is kind of a comedy-oriented, sort of modern-day... I mean, it was set in, like, Meiji era, but not for Japan, but for China. Uh, sort of a pseudo-Lupin. Yeah, it doesn't quite work. It looks nice, but it's like, eh. Um, Intimate Confessions of a Chinese Courtesan, something else that you mentioned. It's a sort of lesbian-friendly kung fu revenge flick with a prize horror, basically. It goes and gets revenge on the four or five rich old men who, like, you know, break, broke her in in the thing. Oh, they more or less gang-raped her. Uh, so the whole thing is her going out and getting revenge in creative ways and taunting the cop who's like, knows that she's the killer but can't prove it. Uh, and she does it pretty much right in front of him all the time, which is – and, you know, for what it is, it's much better than it sounds. From the title, you think, ah, it's going to be some sleazy – you know, who knows, rape flick or some cheesy, you know, sex film. And yeah, that's there, but 
it really turns out to be an interesting sort of wuja, uh, sort of kung fu film. Uh, the Magic Blade is another strange one that, uh, again, playing into the wuja era, but uh, actually these are all true now I'm thinking about. Uh, there's a cannibal killer grandma in this one with people being stuffed into a pot, and she actually like offers the heroin human hand soup, and you see people like, ah, don't let me out, and she puts the lid back on them. Uh, amusing just for that. Killer Clans is another one he did. Uh, that's actually pretty famous. The Web of Death I mentioned earlier that, Okay, you got a good guy who falls for this pretty girl from the, quote, evil poison clan. Uh, and anyone trying to get that clan's secret, which is this evil frog statue, and it spits poison. It does weird spells like it, it spits a web that constricts and crushes its victims. Uh, anybody's trying to get this thing, and whoever who actually does find it uh, ends up trying to destroy all the clans of the martial arts world, which include Shaolin and Wu-Tang. But you know, they're all too busy going after this poor girl. and you know She saves the day, but they basically kill her at the end. So it's, you know, a lot of these are depressing. That's another thing you're going to notice about uh, these old kung fu films. They don't end happily. They, they don't have the Western view of, oh, let's give everybody a happy mm-hmm. ending, you know, happy ever after. No. It's almost like the Japanese, but it's not quite as fatalistic. Uh, it's do what you got to do and, you know, hold up your family honor and, all right, nobody really gets out of this alive. <laughs> Uh, and you'll see that a lot with these, especially the Shaw Brothers films, but definitely all the uh, Hong Kong Kung Fu films of the era. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, he did a couple more, Jade Tiger, Clans of Intrigue, Death Duel, Swordsman and Enchantress, which is almost like a love story, but again, in this uh, same sort of milieu. Uh, Legend of the Bat, I think I mentioned earlier. Basically, everybody's trying to get this mysterious island where the underworld uh, can get anything they want for a price. And there's a big, huge surprise. You aren't quite expecting who their lead baddie turns out to be. And this is sort of playing into the territory that we get into later with Crippled Avengers, because you know you aren't, you really aren't expecting who is the bad guy to be the bad guy here. Um, they definitely had a different view about you know people being whatever, old or disabled or you know female or whatever. Everybody can fight in these damn things, and anybody could be your assassin, uh, which is an interesting take that you don't get in Western films much. Um, Clan of Amazon, Bat Without Wings, uh, I think I had mentioned earlier, that's a great one. They've got a baddie that's basically running around in Gene Simmons' kiss makeup, uh, and there's a lot of horror in this one. I mean, there's like, they go through this yeah. one area where there's all these corpses standing up, and it's like, oh my god, he put all the people he killed here, but then some of them turn out to be alive and come to get him, and then they fall in this river, and it turns out to be poisoned, and like it burns everything. Uh, any human that falls into it like you know, basically gets dissolved by acid. And really insane. These are not typical kung fu films. Wuja films are nuts. Um, familiar enough to say, okay, I want to watch a kung fu film. You watch it, and nobody will complain. Like, oh, that's pretty cool. But it's very they're, – they're their own world. Um, Heroes Shed No Tears, Duel of the Century. Later on, uh, short turned to acting. He was working in bit parts and things like you know, Jackie Chan's Police Story series and Twin Dragons. And the Chow Yun-Fat Indiana Jones Goes Black Magic Curse Epic, The Seventh Curse. Any of you have seen that. Um, but that's all I really want to like. Yeah, I do like that one. <laughs> I like all those things. I, you know, Hex, Bewitched, uh, the one Black Magic one and two, uh, Boxers Omen. They're loads of fun. Uh, we'll get to those in a minute because right. actually. Uh, but is there anything you want to say about Yan before I move on to Homengua? Uh, no, you did good. Okay. All right. So another one of these most important short directors is Homengua, otherwise known, like I said, in the VHS days, you know, for Homenga, and he actually had a really bad reputation. He's like, oh yeah, he does these little sex horror films. They're not really kung fu films. Well, no, they're not kung fu films. He was doing something else. Uh, originally, though, he did a lot of wuja films. 
Uh, they're pretty standard. A few flat-out fantasy ones. He did the four-part adaptation of Journey to the West, the famous uh, Chinese myth, uh, whatever, which features – it's like a wizard of uh, – kind of like a Wizard of Oz type thing. And a lead character is supposed to be a monkey, kind of like Goku on Dragon Ball. Uh, or the original Dragon Ball, I should say. He kind of vanishes well, as it goes monkey. seriously. It's based, it's yeah. based on the monkey. Yeah. And some of these you might actually recognize. They're on DVD here, like you know, Cave of the Silken Web or Land of Many Perfumes. But they're all part of the same strange epic, and it's really odd seeing some guy going around you know, dressed up like a monkey. And I, I don't get them. Uh, he did stuff like Vengeance of the Golden Blade. You can get that on disc. That's actually not bad. Um, the Lady Hermit, you know, a couple of Ching Pei Pei films. Uh, those of you who know all your '90s stuff, like what was she in the? What was that? Crouching Tiger. Uh, I think she was in that one. Uh, yeah, for yeah, she had a bit more part. modern audiences. Right. But yeah, I mean, she was one of the original uh, kung fu girls, kind of like uh, I mentioned before with um, oh, what the hell's her name? Uh, the girl I mentioned in the beginning, who I can't think of right now because my my mind's got the five billion kung fu films. Um, oh, oh, Ching Pei Pei. She she was yeah. She was very popular. She did she did quite a few movies, and she 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 amassed a huge following. And you know, the funny thing is, similar to Michelle Yeoh, she disappeared for a while. She kind yes. of like stopped working for years, a couple of years. And then she popped back up all of a sudden. You know, she's really popular. You know, she's you know the movies in the time period you're talking about with Ching Pei Pei. You know, she was a nip, you know on the present. She was everywhere, and then boom, you didn't see yeah. her anymore. So everybody assumed she retired, and then she turned up out of nowhere, which is kind of the Michelle Yeoh story. And it was odd because actually I remember who I was thinking was Angela Mao Ying. She is not, you know, Angela Mao Ying was freaking gorgeous. Ching Pei Pei was, you know, just a nice, average looking girl. Uh, she always kind of looked older. I mean, even when she was presumably in her 20s, she looked like a 40 year old woman. But, you know, uh, she definitely. Maybe she could, Who knows? Mm. She definitely could pull off the, you know, at least the wire work sort of fighting, you know, whatever. She was uh, impressive enough. Uh, she was certainly a force to be reckoned with in all her films. And I do know that somehow her retirement from the industry during the time you're talking about was related to uh, the fact that um, King Hu had – I don't know if he got fired or if he decided to leave Shaw Brothers. And the two of them, you know, the one said, okay, you're going. I was like, well, screw you. You know, you're my favorite director. You're my favorite actress. I'm going to go too. And both of them left at the same time. Uh, so that was, you know, I don't know what the real reasons were behind both of those, but they were linked, and they did, you know, one of them followed the other one on purpose, saying, all right, the hell with it, I'm not going to work here anymore, and that was kind of the end of it. Um, that's she why both was of them so gorgeous in a touch of scent. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, she, I she was kind of average to me, but she's definitely uh, a force to be reckoned with, and, you know, it's not like she's unattractive or anything. It's just compared to somebody like Angela. No, no, well, that's, that's, that's a particularly epic film, though, that spans years, decades, so, you know, it's, it's yeah, she would age in that one anyway. Um, but where Homing Wong get really interesting wasn't with this stuff. It was in the mid-70s when he became the kind of the go-to horror director for sure. So here he starts doing stuff like The Kiss of Death, which was kind of 
tasteless. I mean, you can almost use that sort of an AIDS thing well before AIDS even existed. Uh, basically, this girl gets uh, taken away and gets infected with VD, and she decides to go and get revenge. And you know, the way she often gets her revenge is by infecting people with her VD. Uh, you know, because it's like a killer version or something. Oh, you get this and you're gonna die. And it's kind of fantasy, you know, uh, misogynist. I'm afraid of women kind of thing. I'm not a big fan of this one. Uh, there actually was a sequel to it, of sorts that he didn't do, uh, which I also saw. That was one of the Celestial Jobs. I can't remember the name of the damn thing. Uh, but anyway, those weren't too much. Uh, I wasn't fans of those. But he then did The Flying Guillotine, uh, which, okay, they had two later films, uh, neither of which was very good. One of them was, uh, who's that guy that I can't stand? Uh, the, the guy, <laughs> I'll remember his name later, and I'll come back to it, but... Uh, it was Jimmy Wang Yu. Yeah, it's Jimmy Wang Yu, right? He had because you know, like like I had mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, as you listen to some of the uh, documentaries and thinking about some of these discs, they have people like T Lung and David Chang, and they had a little thing on uh, Chang Che, like a documentary type thing where I talked to a bunch of people, and one of them had mentioned, oh yeah. That Jimmy Wang Yu, he was the biggest bastard in Hong Kong films. Everybody hated his guts. And I it was something that I always picked up because just watching his films was like, I don't like this fucking guy. I want him to get hurt. You know, it's like you know, he's like no sympathy whatsoever. You can tell he's a complete asshole. And apparently he was. Uh but he went and basically at this point, I, I don't know if he got fired or walked away from the Shaw films and he started doing stuff on his own, like more independent stuff. I think some of it might have been Golden Harvest, but some of it was definitely on his own, one of which was a uh, you know one-armed boxer or something meets the flying guillotine. And it's crazy because it's got stuff that you'll see later in like the Street Fighter games. Like, you know, there's a Dalsim analog. This this guy is like a, supposed to be an Indian yogi and his arms stretch really far. So, but it's not really worth watching. Otherwise, it's just it's bad. And the second Flying Guillotine movie is really terrible too. But the only one that Homeang Wa did was the first one. There's a little bit too much. Uh, I don't want to say human drama because there's a point where the guy that's like one of the, um, the, the basically is an evil prince. You know, this guy invents this Flying Guillotine thing. Of course, they make him his first victim, just like you know with the real Madame Guillotine in, in France. Um, Basically, he ends up going crazy and getting power mad and sending this group of people that he trains, you know, his basically warriors or whatever, uh, trains to use these things out to those assassination attempts, you know, political type stuff. And at one point, he starts getting really paranoid and thinking that his own people are after him, part of this conspiracy. He decides that one of his you know, most faithful guys is one of these people. Uh, and he ends up escaping and running off and disappearing for a couple of years. And he finds some girl that's like a street singer, and he marries her, and they have a kid. And all, what the hell is all this shit? And then later on, of course, they finally come after him, and he has to fight him off. But even with that, it is by far the best of the flying guillotine films. Everybody remembers this thing because it's you know a really hilarious, weird contraption. And this thing that like drops on your head, it's like a buzzsaw. And then when you throw it, it drops on your head, and there's like a little bag over the top of it. And they pull the string out, up comes your head. You know, you're at the edge of the bag. Uh, but the films themselves are really not that good. Um, you know, he made the best of what it is. Uh, but then he did stuff like the two Black Magic films. Both of them are his. Uh, and I think they had, uh, was it T. Lung or was it Lo Lay that was in those two? I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, one of those two guys. And, you know, these are really crazy. Like we mentioned The Seventh Curse earlier and stuff like Hex and Boxer's Own. They're magic 
but it's like, you know, like I said, it's black magic, and somebody goes there and uh, decides that, you know, my boyfriend is no freaking good, and he's cheating on me with somebody else, and uh, I know Tanny Tian Ni, who was always kind of like the hot but dangerous, uh, you know, slutty girl, for more or less, for, for, for Shaw Brothers, was in one of them, uh, as, of course, you know, like the vamp, and, you know, he basically, they go to these wizards and they cast some kind of weird curse on somebody and things get really, really bad and lots of people die and there's a lot of crazy special effects. Uh, loads of fun. It's almost Suspiria-esque in some ways. Um, definitely worth checking out if you're into, you know, what it sounds like. But, you know, very much horror, very much not kung fu, but starring a lot of people you'll recognize in these kung fu films. Uh, he also did The Oily Maniac, which is a little more tasteless, because it's about this guy that uh, basically turns into a monster that you know is made out of oil and tar, and he comes to like bathtubs, so you can see a lot of nudity, because all these girls are there, you know, buck naked in the, in the shower or whatever, and he comes out and, uh, you know, <laughs> does what he has to do with them. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, Mighty P. Kingman, uh, that's kind of infamous. I never particularly liked it. It's kind of a King Kong knockoff. It reminded me a lot of Ape, you know, APE, the uh, the Korean version. Um, Shaolin Handlock, and then he disappeared. Uh, but, you know, he was really the horror guy. The only real competition he had was from another fellow named Chi Hwan Kuei, who did stuff like Bamboo House of Dolls, which was a woman in prison film, kind of nasty one. Killer Snakes, which is a really unpleasant, uh, almost like twisted brain if, if uh, Burnham was like a sex pervert uh, and was really into snakes. Same idea, very uncomfortable film. Uh, he did Hex. He did Bewitched, which is the Hex sequel. He did another one called Hex versus Witchcraft. Uh, Hex after Hex. Boxer's Omen, I mentioned before, which is nuts. Uh, basically, there's like Buddhist temple type stuff going on and uh, a lot of you know, giant symbols coming flying at you and uh, really crazy, lots of light shows, lots of special effects. And Corpse Mania, which I had mentioned before that uh, some of the you know, black magic films are sort of Suspiria-esque. This is really totally jalo. Uh Basically, the guy goes, uh, you know, there's like a slasher running around and he he keeps, if I remember properly, he keeps corpses in his house. And they got one of these old palatial Shaw Brothers type mansions that's all abandoned and run down that they chase him down into. Very, very nice and very much like a Hong Kong Jalo. So, uh, anything you want to say about either of these directors or whatever? Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. No, I was kicked off. <laughs> yeah, I saw you went mute, and I'm like, "What the hell's going on here?" I didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my 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 whole computer crashed and while, while you were rambling, and, <laughs> and I, I got kicked off. But I managed to get on, and you didn't even notice. <laughs> well, I did notice. Actually, that was part of why I was rambling. I'm like, "Okay, I see he's offline. What's going on? I don't hear him, so I'm gonna keep talking." <laughs> this this uh, is the show so exciting that your host are being. Electrified. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there anything you want to say? But I do, I do, I do, I do. Um, you're right. Uh, he, he's absolutely right. Uh, these 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 movies, uh, they are a bit Italianesque in in parts. And 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 the one you mentioned in particular, of course, mania. Is, yeah. yeah, like superior-esque. Uh, yeah, of course, you know, we don't have the Goblin-type score. We don't have that thundering, like, blah, 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 blah. But in terms of art design, art direction, 
um, the use of the gel lighting. It's it's fascinating. They and they they actually pulled this over for a couple of other pictures later on. Um, I guess it's not really what Chinese or Asian audiences wanted. Yeah. So you didn't see too much of that after a bit. Um, I I I tend to think. Well, it's a presumption on my part. I tend to think they were probably watching this stuff just like we. And they said, well, this is pretty cool looking. I wonder how we can incorporate this into one of our movies. You know? yeah. And um, I think it makes them a bit unique, a bit different in the genre they're, you know, they're working in. And, you know, considering what country they're coming from, I'm like, yeah, this is cool. This is different, you know. Yeah, and um, the fact that you're, they're doing this stuff on Shaw Brothers sets with the recognizable Shaw stars is like, wow, this is really strange. And it is really uh, strange. It is, yeah. Again, and, and, you know, back in the nineties even, these are really looked down on. People would mention Homenga or Homengua, but you know, they call him Homenga. Uh and films like this with extreme distaste and you know, kind of the same way they would look at like a Joe D'Amato film or something, or a Fulci film yeah, at the yeah. time. Uh and I don't know if that was prevalent in the Chinese community, if that's where it arose from originally, or if it's from American audiences being exposed to these through VHSs and bootlegs and whatever. But you know, I really think that obviously they're on DVDs a lot of these, so someone must have recognized the value in them. And you know, if you don't mind a little bit of, you know, obviously there's going to be nudity, there's going to be some gore, there's going to be a little bit of gruesomeness, you know, some cheap special effects. Uh, you know, some of them will be a little distasteful, like when you get to the oily maniac and stuff, and you get like the more rapey shit, especially crap like Kiss of Death. Um, you know, there's going to be stuff in there that might make, you know, you turn your head a little bit. But you can say that about most Italian films. You can say a lot, a lot of cult films, uh, a lot of exploitation right. from the 70s. So, you know, if you like that stuff, these are definitely worth checking out, especially Corpse Mania and the two Black Magic films. They're definitely worthwhile. Um, but the, the, one, one issue, uh, also one issue people might have with the Black Magic films, and there's a few others even some not sure brothers at the Chinese. Um, is the well, not so much animal, but the insect stuff is really gross, man. <laughs> yeah, it is. And you know, I don't think this was a sure one, but Chi Chang did Calamity of Snakes. That's also kind of in the same idea, yeah. same vein. Yeah. Uh, basically, like a hotel, they put it over this. Like, uh, I, I think they offended the snake god or something because the workers end up killing a couple of snakes and they're doing something. I think it was by accident, but nonetheless, the hotel became cursed and they have snakes caught up everywhere. Yeah, it's just kind of like one of those ants sort of films from the seventies. But uh, you know, it, it's worth seeing, but you got to really stick your tongue firmly in cheek, and uh, you know, it, it can be distasteful depending on how you feel about this kind of stuff. Uh, so, oh, yeah. um, and there's a lot of the stuff coming from Thailand even today because they don't give a shit. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now we come to... Go ahead. Yeah, there, there was one thing that we didn't mention, um, and because we're talking about the subject matter that we are, is that the earliest films we've been talking about for the last down to 40 minutes it, were... The the earliest martial arts films, even the Shaw Brothers, everything was forms. It started yes. out with forms. You know, it's it's uh, by that I mean, um, you know, blocking, parry, defense, offense. Everything was forms, and then it sped up as the years went by. And um, I don't know if you're going to discuss or if you're planning on discussing how. The, the, the the early days of the forms, which we enjoy that stuff, you know. Um, 
how it actually became what we're used to now. <laughs> yeah, a little bit because uh, when I get into uh, Chang Che, there's there's something to be said about that. But you're correct. I mean, if you watch some of the earlier films, you can get a good, you know, obviously it's a little bit you know, played up and a little bit fantasized and whatever, but you can get a pretty good idea of, oh, look, this is, you know, the real crane style. This is tiger style. This is mantis style. This is whatever. Um, right. You know, they will be putting these Why things on display. <laughs> they will be putting these things on display, and they will actually show you, you know, like how somebody that is uh, trained in that particular style would fight somebody that's right. trained in another style. Um, mm -hmm. Later on, like you mentioned, it just got more crazy and freeform. And I don't know how much of that is just due to people getting tired of it and looking for something else, and how much of it is due to the influence of Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee and Jeet Kune Do. Uh, because, you know, like I talk about many times, even shows like Moving Towards Light. Uh, that's kind of my philosophy. You don't sit there and prepare, and you can probably tell that, uh, with, okay, I need to get every single beat right. And, you know, if I was doing production, you know, as you can probably tell from the music on these shows, uh, I would never sit there and I've got to tweak every single freaking note and it's got to be dead perfect. All right, look, is the music getting across right? Is the feeling right? Does it basically sound right? I mean, yeah, this thing's I can still tweak and still work the fuck out of it, to be honest with you. But, <laughs> you know, it's if it works... Yeah, good enough. And you use, kind of like Bruce was saying, when somebody's coming at you, don't worry about, okay, you've got to do this kata and you've got to do this form and stick to whatever and this is proper. No, you do what's going to take them down. But what's going to do it fast and hard and quick and easy with the least damage to you and the most damage to them, done. You know, walk away. And that's kind of how I approach life is like, well, you know, you, you keep it open, you keep it fluid, you keep it spontaneous, and, you know, you get some real moments of genius in there. You also get a lot where you just kind of fall flat on your face, and guess what? You just keep moving. You know, it's part of the show. Uh, and I think that's a good – and I, I'm wondering if that influence played into why, as you went on, you know, just beyond getting tired of seeing the same thing all the time, uh, the Shaw mm -hmm. films in particular changed from the strict – We've got to show this form. No, this guy would not do this because he is you know, fighting a tiger style. Uh, gave way to, okay, you know, he's a master and he's going to do whatever the frick he wants. And if he wants to do some American boxing in the middle of this and some French sabaté and whatever else, some capoeira, he's going to do it. Uh, and, you know, it, it never quite got that extreme. But, you know, that, that basic idea uh, that may very well have played into this. So – what I wanted to do now is get into the two main directors that everybody is thinking of. And even though as much as I think Homing Wah is very important, and certainly Chor Yuan is important with those Wuja films, uh, and to some extent the other guys that I mentioned in passing, we, these are really the two guys that are Shaw Brothers and, to be honest with you, are Kung Fu films per se. When you say Kung Fu films, most people are thinking of films by one of these two guys. First one, and I would say lesser, uh, even though I love him, is Lau Kar Lung. Uh, he was oh, yeah. a fight choreographer before he became a director. Uh, his films, uh, from the many that I've seen, basically what you're going to get from them, known for their strong character-driven plots. There's a lot more warmth than you get in Chang Che films. And this is really amazing sword and weapons choreography. He really concentrates on that. Uh, you could tell that he was a fight choreographer because everything is very graceful. Everything is very deliberate. And there's really some jaw-dropping fight scenes like, wow, how the freak did they pull that one off? You know, you know these people were good. Um, they're also far less oh, fantasy-based. I, I, I always liked his stuff. I always liked his stuff. And I have to say, uh, it's not a sure Brothers film. But I think his penultimate work 
was uh, working with Jackie Chan on Drunken Master 2, that, that yeah, half an hour great. fight scene. Which was great. Amazing. Amazing. That is Don't my favorite. My favorite Jackie Chan film, hands down. I yeah, love it. Mine too. Mine too. It's a fucking great movie. And yeah, it's got a little comedy. That's about the only thing that's a little weak there. Yeah, it's a, but it's it's probably the best Jackie Chan movie ever. Yeah. And that that scene it's it's not even a scene, it's that portion of the movie. Amazing. Impressive. Yeah. Yep, and isn't that the one where they go and fight under the train as well? I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah, uh, and, and he's fighting. He's fighting Lockhart Wynn. Yes, yes. Who was yeah. at that point pretty freaking old? So I mean, it, it's just amazing yeah. how these guys. And like I said, his films are very character driven. You you're gonna find romance. You're gonna find believable human interactions yes. with nuance. It's like really, this is a kung fu film. Okay. Uh, you know, you actually care about the characters here. They're also far less fantasy based, you know, because I was comparing them with Che how cold those films are comparatively, uh, for all their good points. Uh, and also the choreography and all stuff that you don't get in Che. But they're also far less fantasy based than like we talked before, the Wuja films with Chiru Yuan and stuff. They're more akin to what Western audiences think of when you say kung fu film. But again, it's more palatable. They're probably the most palatable to a Western audience because you can relate to these people, because you're gonna see some amazing, you know, uh basically martial arts kung fu. Uh and yet, you know, you will give a shit as well. Um one person uses a lot. He had a kind of a repertory. Kara Hui, who was actually bawling him. <laughs> uh, pretty girl. Uh, and Xiao Ho, who tended to work comic relief, uh, joined his relative, uh, Gordon Liu, who's the one everybody knows, you know, the master killer. Uh, the guy who's always a Shaolin monk, you know, bald head and little spots on his head uh, in many of his movies. Um, there are other people he brings with him, but those three are like almost always there. And if you see them, and their chances are, it is a Lao Carl Long. Um, he did a spiritual boxer well, challenge the masters. Go ahead. Gordon Liu, this uh, what Gordon Liu movie you know is a classic. Quick. Oh come on, it, it's easy. Thirty Six Chamber. And uh, how about yeah. Eight Diagram Pole Fighter? I mean, those actually I like Eight Diagram Pole Fighter better. Eight Diagram Pole Fighter. Yeah. Uh, how about this one? I was just going to mention Executions from Shaolin. I had to mention this one specially. I love this film. It is so fucking insane. Um, Gordon Liu, by the way, his, his other name is uh, Chi Hui Liu. Uh, Chia Hui Liu. It's tough to say these names, but that's that's why he changed it into Gordon, I guess. Try to westernize it. Uh, this film is amazing. There's some dope going around with no penis. I'm not kidding. Uh, he kills all the Shaolin monks. Uh, this one guy who's, I guess, one of the students keeps trying to get revenge, right? But the guy with no dick, he'll, he'll grab fighters when they hit him in the nuts. <laughs> this, this, this is serious. This is actually what's happening. This guy's got no dick. The guy's going to try to get revenge because he killed all the Shaolin monks. Uh, and when any fighter goes and grabs him, you know, he, he like hit him in the nuts, he traps him. He like sucks them into where he should have a cock, and he and he drags him along the ground, and then like stabs him to death, or you know, like punches him in the gut and kills him. This is seriously the film, and he does this several times. And it's like, who would think of something like this? Seriously? Uh, <laughs> they take a half an hour out of the film to make cheap sex jokes about this guy's marriage to a girl whose kung fu trick, get this one, is to keep her legs together tight so that he can't screw her. 
And his pervert buddies are like peeping in the window, like making jokes while he's there trying to prove like, oh, she's like, oh, show me your Kung Fu. And he's like trying to pull her legs apart and he can't do it. And he ends up like sleeping out oh, like he's on his wedding night. He's like sleeping out on the de- on the boat and like he can't get any. Uh <laughs> Later on, they raise a gender bender son who dresses like a girl, but they never really explain why he dresses like a freaking girl. Because I figure, okay, well, maybe they're trying to hide the fact that, okay, I'm raising a male fighter so the guy doesn't come kill him or something, right? But then why does he go into the final fight against the guy with no dick still dressed like a girl? I'm like, what the hell? It, it makes no sense whatsoever. It's completely insane. And yet, despite all this, you actually still sort of care about the characters. The plot's you know, engaging enough. And it's you know, obviously ridiculously hilarious. I'm mean, just a guy with no cock. I mean, what the hell is that all about? I'm like, oh, yes, here, I'm going to trap you where it should be. Ha, 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 and drag you around and beat you up. Like, that's seriously how this guy beats everybody. This is his master fighting skill. And he keeps moving his vulnerable spot. They think they found it. They've got like a statue full of, like, I don't know, marbles or something. Uh, that the guy fights with in the backyard all the time, trying to like you know make the marbles fall in a certain spot because you know that's where his vulnerable spot is. And they think they learned it, but it turns out oh, I can move my spot wherever I want. Right now it's in the back of my head. I'm like, what are you talking about? It, it's insane. The craziest, well, not the craziest kung fu film I've ever seen, but definitely the craziest La Carl Long film I've ever seen. Loads of fun. Executions from Shaolin. I highly recommend it. Um, Thirty Six Chambers Shaolin. Everybody knows. Um, it's the original. Actually, the the return to the thirty six chamber was better, uh, which yeah. I'll get to shortly. But anyway, the, the original everybody knows it, and it's not bad. I only remember about this one that was really funny was when he goes there, and the, the Shaolin monks won't take him. Uh, so he goes and says, "I'm going to be here anyway," and he burns. He uh, he tries to make himself a monk, so he tries to shave his own head, and then he tries to burn himself with the incense to make the little spots on his head. But they're all freaking crooked, and he leaves them that way through the rest of the film. And I think they must have filmed a couple films back to back because there's some other films where they're still kind of crooked. I'm like, what the hell? Uh, really kind of amusing side thing. Look for that if you watch the movie. Um, Shaolin Mantis. It's another one of my favorites, actually. Uh, it's David Chang getting sent to infiltrate a rebel nest by the evil Qing Emperor, right? So if he fails to bring back this list of names of all the rebels, his family's going to be killed, right? So he poses as a teacher, like a scholar. He flirts with this cute, cute friggin' girl. She's like, you know, she's like flirting with him, being a pain in the ass or whatever. Uh, some girl named Huang Xin Hu. Uh, oh, sorry, Huang Xin Hu. Um, but when his yeah. mission gets sussed out, right, she saves him by saying, oh yeah, he slept with me, you know, so basically forced, she forces a shotgun wedding and this saves his life and get, she gets to keep him, right? So the father agrees, so long as the guy never leaves the house. So they start living together and they're happy, but, you know, he remembers his family. He's like, okay, i got to finish this mission. So, Basically, she gets dragged into this, and things go bad. Uh, they're actually really cute together as a couple, and they have to fight their way out through the family with everyone holding this like gate, you know, which is basically a room that they're in in this big mansion that they have to defeat, and then uh, if they're going to leave. So, but unfortunately, like I said, the wife and the sympathetic mother end up getting killed trying to help him in the final fight, right? So he comes back afterwards, and you figure, okay, he's there to get revenge because, you know, you killed my wife, you killed my mother-in-law, whatever the hell. Nope, he's just coming back for that fucking list. I'm like, what an asshole, right? <laughs> so he beats everyone now. He gets the list. He delivers it to the king, only to get poisoned by his father because the father's a rebel himself. And he's like, yeah, you rotten traitor, now die with me. And he poisons them. I'm like, wow, what a freaking ending. But before that, it was a fantastic film, and like I said, they make a really cute couple. Uh, it's definitely loads of fun, uh, worth seeing. And 
another one. Again, he loves relationships. He, he does films that are really good like this. Uh, Heroes of the East, uh, which was over here originally as Challenge of the Ninja, if you, those of you who remember from the 80s. One of my all-time favorites. Um, Gordon Liu gets into an arranged marriage with a Japanese girl, supposedly. She's really Chinese. Uh, and he insults the Japanese karate style because, you know, it's more blunt and whatever than the Chinese style, which is true. And if you practice the, the forms, you see how they work. Uh, the Japanese styles are pretty straightforward and aggressive, whereas the Chinese emphasize form. Like you mentioned earlier, there's a lot more fluid motion and, uh, you know, like their, their weapons have tassels on, which originally I thought, like, why the hell do they have a tassel on? But it's really smart because it distracts you while you're fighting. Uh, the Japanese are very like, okay, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to hack straight at you, and one of us dies first. It's almost like uh, why we won the war against the British. You know, like, okay, let's all stand here, and whoever has the most men standing, if we stand in a line and shoot each other, is the winner. I'm like, what the fuck, are you crazy? So, you know, we won by doing guerrilla warfare. So here, that's why the Chinese martial arts tended to be at least more graceful, if not superior, to the Japanese ones. And that was his argument. But she gets really pissed off at this, obviously, because she's supposed to be Japanese, runs back home, tells her uncles, and each one of these ones is a master of some supposedly Japanese, but I think some were Korean martial arts or weapons or whatever. Uh, and then they show up and basically face off. I'm like, okay, you apologize. And he blows his shot at ending. So he gets into a fight with one guy, and the guy you know, gives him his sword like a samurai. He's like, okay, oh, take my sword. And he doesn't understand it. So you know, it's like, all right, and like, I don't want it. You can take it. And, of course, this is a huge insult because it's like, you know, I just you know did this to you. You're supposed to take it, and there you go. Uh, so now he's insulted the entire family and the culture, so he has to beat everybody, and it gets really kind of dicey. But in the end, all's well. The couple actually gets back together and uh, you know lives happily ever after, which is unique. Uh, really, really fun film. Uh, highly recommend the Heroes of the East. Uh, he does a spiritual boxing too. He does Dirty Ho, which has not come over here on DVD, but I remember being amused by it uh, in the VHS days. Um, Mad Monkey Kung Fu. This is another one with Xiao Ho in it, but this time he's kind of the star. Uh, he gets revenge for his master being framed and crippled and having his sister prostituted. I actually wrote down the plots on some of these because they were so amusing. Uh, despite how it sounds, it's actually a comedy. You know, picture the plot I just said to you, right? His, his master gets framed, the master gets crippled, his sister gets prostituted, but it's a comedy. And it's actually one of the few, like uh, we mentioned earlier about uh, Drunken Master, where it's actually funny, um, at least in its third and final half hour. Uh, a first, third, and final half hour in the middle, it gets a little serious. Uh, in the middle, things get kind of grim, like I was mentioned, particularly when the baddies, the, the guy that, it's a long story, basically he was a drunk, and they framed him. It was a whole scam to get his sister, like basically turned to a prostitute and all this other crap, uh, and take his money and whatever else. So he ends up working on the streets. He has like a monkey act, like an organ grinder kind of a thing. And he, you know, his monkey's his best friend or whatever the hell, he, he makes a meager living. Well, these thugs come into town who are associated with this jerk-off that like, crippled his hands in the first place and all this. They take his freaking monkey. Now, I really hope – it looks like a puppet. It really does look like a puppet. I really hope this was not, you know, whatever. But who knows because, you know, this is not America and this was not, you know, <laughs> this is in the 70s. They take the freaking monkey. It's on a chain, right? And swing it into a fucking tree. I'm like, oh, my God. God, I was like, like I said, you never know. It could have been anything. So that horrified me. But otherwise, the film was definitely entertaining in the beginning and the end. Uh, so mixed recommendation on that one. It really depends on how much you could take some of that shit in the middle. Uh, I know that was really tough for me. And it's still kind of like, oh, my. Uh, <laughs> 
Another one he does is really good, My Young Auntie, which I think they actually won a bunch of awards for. Uh, it's a fun comedy with Kara Hui, once again, who's his girlfriend there. Uh, there's a corrupt family member that's set to inherit the family fortune. So to prevent this, the old man marries this young girl, right? He has to deliver the will, passing it on to a, a more favorable family member. It's like drops the traditional lines of inheritance, goes like the, you know, the third uncle or something. There's a whole lot of gag business with her being like a senior family member over him because you know, you know she's like a young girl and he's an old man. Uh, and he's got like a young sort of Americanized son. He goes off to college and stuff, and he keeps butting heads with her. And they go to town, and she's kind of like a country bumpkin, you know, all kinds of like cheap comedy stuff like that. But it works. You know, you're actually amused by all this. Uh, and then there's a final siege that kind of saves the film, if you will, and it makes it more like actiony. Uh, on the old, you know, the guy that because the guy steals the will back, you know, it really belongs to me because I was the one next in succession, even though you know the old man don't want to leave me because I'm a shithead and whatever. So they do a siege on the house, and she brings all the other uncles who were like former fighters, but they're all kind of like old and washed up and like a big guts and stuff. And she like trains them, which is funny as hell. And they all do a siege on the estate, and the estate's full of booby traps. It's fun. I definitely enjoyed the hell out of that one. Oh, it's um, a classic show. Brothers, this one, yeah, sure. Return to the thirty-six chamber, which I remember calling. It used to be Return of the Master Killer over here, and I was when I had my VHS days. I had Return of the Master Roofer, I used to call it, because that's what it is. He goes to the, the Shaolin Temple to learn kung fu. And, you know, usual. You know, my town got killed. I'm gonna go off in disgrace. Whatever, I gotta learn kung fu. And he's too much of a dope to learn kung fu, and they won't let him in, so he forces his way in anyway. So what do they end up doing? They say, okay, well you can stay here, all right, but you know, we need to fix our roofs. So he starts making this freaking scaffold uh, going across the whole Shaolin Temple, which is huge. And he's there for like three years making the roof. And that's it. And while he's up on the roof, he watches them practice. He starts practicing along with them while he's making the roof up in the scaffold. But this, uh, the, the whole thing of this movie is that his ability to uh, lace together with whatever he's using, vine or whatever. Yes. And, and making it taut so this thing won't go down. It's also part of his training on their part, and they're not making him aware of this, you know? Right. I thought yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. Well, they have that a lot of times after this. Like, I've seen ones where they, they make the guy cook in ovens and stuff and carry water, and that's all part of the training. But it's the same thing. He's up there. He's doing, like, you know, he's copying them. He's doing all the kung fu stuff on the bamboo poles, and like you said, he's, well, he's doing the doing wrapping that. around. And So when he ends up going down at the end... Uh, they're like, oh, get out of here! And while he's like fighting his way out, basically he's doing better than everybody else and beating all the the stuff that they were training on, just because you know from doing the roof. So somehow he's become like a master, you know, a challenge master from fixing the fucking roof. So all you roofers out there, there's hope for you. <laughs> um, one called Marshall Club that wasn't very good at all. Uh, didn't he just legendary weapons of China? There's a lot of magic. There's voodoo dolls that make people bow. Like they gotta like you know take the the doll and make it bow, and all of a sudden the guy's like, he can't control himself and he's bowing. There's weird humor from Fu Shang. Uh, Gordon Liu even gets some humor when he's got like, kind of like the uh, the Boxer Rebellion. He's got a bunch of, oh, look, you're invincible to weapons, and they do all this crap. And <laughs> all of a sudden they, he has them, okay, now you're ready, and they shoot him with guns, and they're all standing like, ah, oh, okay, I'm making it. And he turns around and all of them drop dead at once, you know, after being like, supposedly invincible to gunfire. Um, and it's actually a rare, not only for him being comedy, which isn't usual, but Xiao Ho actually has a serious role in this one. Not a great one, but it's amusing enough in its own way. But I think, even though I love all these films that I mentioned, certainly, uh, you know, stuff like Executioner from Shaolin, Shaolin Mantis, uh, Heroes from the East, those are really great ones. 
eight diagram pole fighter may be the best, right? Or if not, it's yeah. definitely up there. Um, you know, you've got Gordon Liu again. You got Fu Shang. Uh, there's Mongol warriors. They're aided by like a official that's like a domestic trader basically they trap and kill all the local warriors and they only leave two brothers alive right they track the one down to the family estate but you know his political influence basically shoes him away uh the other one decides to become a shaolin monk despite the abbot basically telling him to fuck off once again and the shaolin monks are really kind of assholes uh, so he shaves his oh this is the one i was talking about well, he shaves his own head with a straight razor and no mirror jabs his head in the incense sticks to make the shaolin spots on his head asymmetrically he gets contacted and told one of his sisters in the mongols hands so he goes down to the local tavern where they're hiding to get revenge, and then the rest of the story goes down. And this whole thing's like, you know, the people popping out of coffins, and this whole intrigue, how are we going to get, you know, this girl out? Because, you know, she's the number three cousin. And it really crazy, convoluted, and really, really good. And there's a lot of really good kung fu in it. Um, you know, he does a couple others after this Invincible Paul Fighter, Disciples of the Third Six Chamber, which is unwatchable. Don't get it. It's horrible. It's pure comedy. Uh, martial arts is Shaolin. He starts doing films that are more Hong Kong. Uh, Tiger on the Beat, Mad Mission 5, uh, Drunken Master 2 well, and 3, Drunken Monkey. You know? Go ahead. Well, 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 Tiger on the Beat is you know, a different kettle of fish. And, and yeah. that's, that starts to point us toward the direction of Hong Kong you know, Wire Fu and Jackie Chan films and, and Cynthia Rothrock films when she was doing them over there with. Um, uh, yeah, Michelle Yeoh, Michelle. when she was still Michelle Kahn, yeah. and you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, when uh, she was Michelle Kahn. Yeah, yeah, right. and Nina Mui um, and all those people we talk about. Um, oh God bless Nina Mui. I, I I love Nina Mui. She was, oh, so she was great. She was great. Um, but uh, go ahead. Yeah, but no, that's no. We're actually leading up to something, which is the change. I think. Mm -hmm. I think. And what we're coming getting close. Now. We're, yeah, we're getting uh, close to the change. So let me we're, hit. Okay, I'll let you hit. All right. I was <laughs> going to say, let me hit the, the last main director, and then we'll hopefully touch on this. Um, so finally, and even though I really love La Carlang films, uh, probably most importantly for anybody that watches Shaw Brothers Kung Fu films or Kung Fu films in general, we're going to get to Chang Che. This guy was a former film critic. Uh, and he actually studied politics in mainland China during, like, you know, communism. So I don't know where he really stood, but you can kind of tell from his films. Um, and his films do tend to be pretty political and anti, uh, anti-authoritarian, let's put it that way, which was good. Um, he's definitely always going against, you know, those dirty Manchus or whatever the hell and fighting, you know, oppression in government and things like that. Um, his films are... Pretty much, even though I really love La Carlung for all the you know entertainment value, for all the uh, graceful motion, for all the characterization, uh, for the fact that you care about the characters, really when you're thinking kung fu films, you're thinking kind of comic books, and it, there's nobody better at this than Chang Che. Uh, just about everybody I've seen interviewed in relation to Chang Che praises him to high heaven as a person, not just as a director, but you know just you know as himself. Uh, apparently, he really looked out for all the guys that started his pictures regularly. Um, but notice I said What's that weird one? What's that weird one he did? It was they were all wearing like gold metallic heads or masks. Oh, 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 was that Masked Avengers? I remember that one. 
Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Strange one. I don't think that one came over on DVD here. I mean, you might be able to get it on like one of shitty bootlegs or something, but yeah, that, that was a strange one. You know that, like you mentioned, it's almost like um, what's the one that Watkins did? Uh, the one, that, the notorious one, Last House on Dead End Street. It's like that yes. sort of a Grecian mask they're wearing. These giant Grecian masks, but they're gold. I'm like, I don't know. It was, it was strange. Um, but what I was saying about notice that. Most when I mentioned before about like everybody praising the high heaven, we're talking about guys all the time. There's a weird undercurrent of homoeroticism running through his pictures, uh, where all men are brothers. But on the flip side, and they don't admit this, but it comes out in the films, all women are worthless, dangerous distractions, or whores. I'm like, really? Uh, okay. Uh, and you're gonna notice, yeah, this, but, especially if you watch a couple. Yeah, but the, but doesn't that obviously point to something that you know might point to something, but towards own sexuality? You know, we're not exactly. we're not saying anything here, guys. But no, it's but I'm seeing what I see in the films, and you will definitely see it too. There's no you know beating around the bush here. You are gonna see that his films are very homoerotic, and that the women in it are. Basically, whores are worthless, or you know, dangerous, or you so, know. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, it, it's. I hate to say the word obvious, but it's it's quite possible that's what was going on with him. You know? Yep. And you know, at the very least, they come off as extremely misogynistic, but it's so consistently over the top that they really are homoerotic. And I will say that I, I recently saw this documentary <laughs> I mentioned. Which is they, funny, you know, you touched you touched on something. I'm gonna go off tangent yeah. for about. Minutes, which is funny because Kill Bill, the Kill Bill movies, are such in a way a tribute to these kind of movies we're discussing tonight. Yes. Because they are so weirdly misogynistic, and in the same way, not. Yeah. But portions of Kill Bill, yes. No, no, he's not. But but portions of Part One do contain these elements. So he's obviously been watching as Bible, as lore, right. as movies we're discussing tonight. Yeah, I, well, he did. And, and and it's funny, like, portions of part one are really uneasy to watch because there's a lot of this misogynistic stuff going on in there. You know, the beating, the shooting, yeah. the rape in the hospital, and and the uh, stuff that happens later on with the whole attack on, on Lucy Liu's place is the other stuff, you know, for other directors, the other influences. So, you know, it's just funny that you brought this up, so it, t- it touched upon me that and I wanted to bring that up because, you know, it's it's interesting, you know. Here's something more contemporary, something could use as an, an analogy to this. Yeah, and, you know, both of us are straight, so far as I know, I mean, as far as I can tell from you and you, Gene, you and being with you. Um, and, you know, obviously we watch the kind of films we do. You hear us talking every week. You know, we're not politically correct. Uh, so misogyny to some extent is like, okay, whatever. It's fact of life, whatever. you got to deal with it, especially in these older films because, you know, you're not going to go retroactively change history here. It's ridiculous. But uh, – We do not approve, by the way. It's so over the top. There is no question. It's like – you know, watching the Shang J film, when it comes to women, it's like, oh, wow, this is painful, and you know something's wrong. And it's like, no, this, this just isn't. It's too over the top. So that's why I gotta like hammer that home. If you're gonna watch a Chang Che film, you you're gonna notice this. Trust me. Um, it's like your worst Italian women in prison film. Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> true. 
and I will say though, just on the flip side, just you know, to give him the benefit of the doubt, I did see a short documentary recently on Che, like I mentioned, some of his discs, where they claim, and this is true too, because if you look at the older films from Shaw before the ones we cared about, uh, he was revolting deliberately against an earlier strain of Wuja film that focused mainly, if not exclusively, on its female leads. Uh, so now he wanted to put it, you know, the, the focus on the guys. But even so, you know, you're really going to notice it, and y- even that's kind of in question when you see what's going down. Uh, but that's it. Like I mentioned earlier, these are the most comic book, uh, gorgeous, set focused, and day glow of all the kung fu films, even more so than the wuja films usually. With few, if any, parallels, even among the great directors of Shaw. I mean, he focuses on extreme violence. Uh, his films are full of cripplings and maimings and missing limbs and uh, more spraying blood and carnage than even the Japanese Chambara films from the same era, which is saying something. Um, he directed some of the most well-known, much-beloved kung fu films of all time, often in tandem with folks like Jimmy Wang Yu, who, like I mentioned, was the, the biggest asshole in kung fu cinema, always a one-armed something or other. Uh, the goofy comedian acrobat Alexander Fu Sheng, that chipmunk cheap bastard. Uh, <laughs> the Venoms, you know. Uh, low oh, man. You know, uh, uh, Jimmy Wang Yu. Jimmy Wang Yu. You know, it's funny that you you said what you did, because Jimmy Wang Yu suddenly fell out of favor, uh, for for a number yes. of years, and 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 there was talk of Jimmy Wang Yu being involved with the triads. You know, yeah. you guys know your John Woo movies. Come on, that's true. So in real life, and uh, word is well, history. Says that 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 Jack uh, Jimmy Jackie Chan owed Jimmy Wang Yu for his yes. modern day success with Police Story. I heard that. We don't yes. know what that means, but there was a movie in I think it was eighty three, eighty four called Island of Fire, which actually Jackie has a uh, you could call almost a supporting role, but it pretty much starred Jimmy Wang Yu. It was supposed to be intended as a comeback vehicle. Like a field on all cylinders. It wasn't a really great movie. Samo Hung's in it, and it, but it was obvious. Like this is Jackie's payback hey, movie. This favor, yep. Movie. You owe me a favor. Yeah, this favor. always works. <laughs> so everybody knows the Island of Fire story, which is funny because this shit got out. But uh, yep, yeah. But apparently Jimmy Wang Yu was known to be involved with whatever, and and you know. It's it's more you know going in line because you hate Jimmy Wang Yu apparently. It fits right with his personality. <laughs> I figured he'd be some shithead mobster, but anyway. Um... I wasn't crazy about David Chang either. Although I, I have to him. say, he was okay. I wasn't crazy about. Him. No, but you crazy. know you're gonna laugh. The one movie I actually like David Chang in. What movie is that? Savage Five. No, it's The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. <laughs> really? <laughs> that would have never... You could have me reciting titles off for an hour. I would have never said The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. <laughs> Why'd you like it in that? I mean, it wasn't horrible for what it was. You know, it was a weird Hammer Shaw collaboration with a bad... You know, that, that vampire was terrible. Uh, and he wasn't bad in it. You're right. But, I mean, why, why that one in particular? You still there? Um, uh-huh. Yeah, I am. Uh, it's a... It's a Shaw Brothers co-production with Hammer. Don't forget that, folks. And uh, it's it's a weird movie. It's probably one of the most bizarre Hammer movies ever. Yes. And uh, I thought David Chang was really likable on that. And uh, who the hell played his sister? Who the hell was that? 
Oh, jeez, I don't even remember as well since I've seen that one. Uh, like I said, all I remember was the, the stupid-ass vampire that was so bad and how uncomfortable what, what, the British what, actors appeared to be working with you know, the Hong Kong people. Yeah, yeah, and Julie Edge was the girl. Yes, Julie Edge, right? When dinosaurs fell, uh, when dinosaurs fell the earth, yes, that was. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I liked him in that. Yes, that's I why Julie Edge had a career. When when dinosaurs felt Julie Edge, uh, <laughs> these little like, fat guys are running a hammer or whatever. You know what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so also I want to mention that you know he worked with the Venoms. You know people like Lo Mang, who was the Toad and the Kid with Golden Arm. Yeah. Oh, he actually was the Kid with Golden Arm. Uh, Lu Feng, who was the centipede and usually the baddie in these other films. Uh, Quo Chi, who was the lizard. Sun Chen, who was the scorpion. He was usually a baddie, too. Uh, Wei Pai, who was the snake. Cheng Sheng, who was the student. Uh, and, you know, like you mentioned, Pretty Boy David Chang, uh, the grim stoic T Lung, who I always loved. Um, but some of his films, and we'll just go through a couple of them here. Uh, One Armed Swordsman, uh, which, again, we're talking about uh, <laughs> Jim Wang Yu. Uh, but it's still a good film, despite Jim Wang Yu, which says something. Uh, a poor servant girl gets killed defending his master. So the master takes his child, uh, snubs, ostracizes him. His brat daughter gets pissed off that he won't return her interest. So guess what she does? She cuts off his fucking arm. And, so, and later on, he's like, she's shocked. That he won't respond when you know after he's like a good guy and saves him from some sleazy kidnappers, she comes on to him and he's like, "I got no interest in you." And she's shocked by this. You cut off his fucking arm, you bitch. <laughs> so in the meantime, he marries some like dumpy bumpkin type, which carries over to the sequel. But the third, the final third of the film is what makes this good. His master, who is also this bitch's father, is about to have his birthday, which is also like his retirement party, to see who's going to pass the school, <laughs> right? Uh, he's got to pass the school on to somebody, but it's like his retirement. So here it is, happy birthday. Rival martial artists come in and kill just about everybody, only to be defeated by this guy with one arm who walks off in disgust at the end, and they break his sword and forget it. I'm not passing on anybody. Happy birthday. Uh, <laughs> but that last... Oh, man, you know, the, the, the more I listen to ourselves talk, we we, we got to definitely like, do some audio commentaries, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Come on, guys. Hit us up. The biggest, yeah. Come on, give us something to do. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So he did uh, Golden Swallow, which is also decent. Has Cerebral Travel, Mincible Fist. Return of the One-Armed Swordsman. Return of the One-Armed Swordsman. Now he's a a farmer with his dumpy wife, but he gets called back into action because evil masters start killing off all the martial arts schools in the area. Uh, Oh, this is the one I was talking about before. I'm sorry. Uh, Remember I told about the the dead bodies being posed like they're having a tea party? Uh, But then they Mm -hmm. figure out that, oh, look, these are corpses. Nope, they're alive, and they're going to attack them in the the poison river that's acid and all that jazz. Um, You know, but despite that fantastic little, you know, whatever that period is in the film, you know, 25 minutes worth, yeah, there's not as much of the character-driven business, or and you know I hate to say this because this is Jimmy Wang Yu, but it doesn't have the likability of the original. So it was it was mixed. There's parts that you definitely want to see. It's definitely worth checking out, but it's not as good as the first one. Um, he does a whole bunch of them after that. They're kind of questionable, heroic ones, uh, Deadly Duel, New One Armed Swordsman, well, no. King Eagle, Water Margin, Boxer from Shantung. We're fans for those. We're just not big fans. Yeah, I mean, they don't really work as well for me anyway. Um, then he has another good one, Delightful Forest, which who the hell ever heard of Delightful Forest, right? But it's a great Key Lung film. 
Yeah, T Long is oh, a beautiful Oh, T Long, yes. Uh, he's a good guy who kills some evil in-laws, right? But then he surrenders to justice because you know he's an upright swordsman. So he, you know the jailers keep get, trying to give him some favors. They're like, oh yeah, you're a great hero. We want, you know, we'll be nice to you. He's like, no, nope, no, nope, do it. Always, I'm, I'm under arrest. I always liked him. He um, was great. I, I, I actually, yeah, one yeah. Of my those guys. Uh, then when I saw Better Tomorrow, one and two. Yeah. Wow, T Lung's magnificent. <laughs> he really is. He's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, so, you know, he's, they're trying to be nice to him. It's like, oh, you're a great hero. You know, you don't deserve to be. He's like, nope, I'm a criminal. I, I did it. You know, give me the full punishment, right? So, you know, he goes to jail, and they're trying to be nice to him. No, he doesn't want to hear it. Give me the same treatment as everybody else. Uh, but then he gets released by the warden's son, who turns out to be the former owner of the inn or gambling hall of the title, which is the Legend of the Forest. Uh, and it's been taken over by this big thug named The Door. Right, big fat guy, like you know, seven foot tall and you know, overweight. Uh, he gets released just to go and oust the baddies, right? He does it, but while he's out there, he runs a this conspiracy of evil magistrates and rich folks who has to take out before the film ends. It's a good, good film. There's lots of funny set pieces. I really like when he dunked the the door's wife in a. She's like throwing a fit, like oh, you can't do this. So they have these barrels of wine, and he puts her upside down in the barrel of wine and leaves her there. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I do. I, mean, I remember that scene. Yeah. Really, Great stuff. It's a good film with a lot of great set pieces, and P. Lung is fantastic. Um, let's see, what other ones we got here that are worth talking about? And Savage Five, I mean, that's a kind of a magnificent uh, seven sort of a thing, you know, with a small town being an attack. It's very savage and brutal, like I mentioned. Uh, let's see, Heroes 2, Legend of Seven Golden Vampires, they mentioned. Co-director was Roy, Dor- uh, Roy Ward Baker, uh, David Chang's there on the Hong Kong end. Uh, you obviously liked it a lot. I just found it a curiosity. You know, I wasn't too fond of it, but it's not well, bad. Well, it's, 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 well, you know, it's Hammer did two pictures for Shaw, and that was one of them. And uh, Shatter Chris better. Lee. Yeah, I really dislike Shatter. Really? But, it's not a great film, but I liked it better, despite Stuart Whitman or whatever well, it was. <laughs> well, I, I always loved Peter Christian. It was about the time I met him, too. The, my one and only time I met him. Really? It's around this year. Yeah. And um, he still he put some brio into the performance, surprisingly enough. And he... Uh, you know, it's like, it's a fucked up picture, because, like, Chris Lee don't want to return, so why don't we hire somebody who looks nothing like him, <laughs> with the weirdest, damn bushiest eyebrows, and a yep. weird 70s porno. Shittiest actor ever. <laughs> shittiest actor, uh, Bad maybe. makeup. <laughs> um, and then let's, let's garishly light all the interior scenes out of Suspiria, yep. and, uh, which we, we name-checked before, and then... Um, let's just make it more palatable for the overseas market. Let's add a lot of gratuitous nudity. What? (laughs) And so this thing was was an abomination toward Hammer when they finally saw the release, but they're like, what do we do with this? So they sat on it for a while, and what was supposed to be the great Hammer Shaw Brothers co-production Wound up getting released as Count Dracula and his vampire bride. Right. Seven brothers meet Dracula, and there's right. some other weird title. And I mean, I like David Chang in it, as I said before. I like Cushing in it. Um, there's some. It, it's if you turn your brain off at the door, mm. there's some good stuff. I think one of the Anchor Bay 
which is now out of print. Uh, DVDs actually had both prints on that, uh, like the cut one and the close to the original one. Mm-hmm. And now Shatter was the other picture they did with Shaw Brothers. Yeah. Which was uh, past this prime American star, Stuart Whitman, right? Yep. Yep. And Drunk off Anton his ass. Anton <laughs> yeah. and, and we like Anton Diffring, you know. And, yeah. And the Peter Cushing's in it. And it was like a spyish caper thing, sort of. I don't know what the hell to make it. It's happen. not as good as Stoner, which is uh, not Shaw Brothers, but, you know, same idea, kind of uh, a 70s drug spy type thing. Uh, but, you know, I did like Shatter, and I know you don't. Um, it's just, you know, Stuart Whitman's old and drunk and not particularly likable in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the real failing of it, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's true, it's true, it's true. Yeah. Well, I so, don't know if he was drunk, but he appeared that. Come on. <laughs> Stuart Whitman, yeah, he's drunk. It's like saying, oh, I wonder if Aldo Ray is drunk. Yeah. Uh. Well, no, it's like, I wonder if Gig Young, Young is Jr. drunk. drunk? <laughs> Gig Young, there's no Gig Young, you know Gig Young? Yes. All, uh, those, all those, all those, yeah. Is Aldo Reed drunk? Hmm, let me think, yeah. Is Wings Hauser yeah, high you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> one, one, one day, one day we're gonna watch. We're gonna do an Oliver Reed show. Which is, oh, it's gonna be such. I would a love fun to do that. Thing. You anybody that likes Oliver Reed as much as we do, uh, I know I do. I'm sure you do. From what we're talking here, has got Oliver. to go back, listen to the interview I did with Nico Mastarakis. He did a film with him towards the end of his career. You know, late eighties. right? Uh, no, not Wilson Terror. It's a different one. This was, uh, oh, what the hell was the name of this thing? Uh, all I remember is that Brian Thompson was in it, and he was posing as a fashion, uh, you know, designer, which is totally ridiculous. Uh, Brian Thompson, the fashion designer. And they go and invade this uh, Greek island, which is run by, you know, Oliver Reed. It's like the baddie. And there are some behind-the-scenes stories about Oliver Reed that are really... <laughs> I mean, if you know Oliver Reed, you will believe them immediately. But it's like, wow, <laughs> definitely worth hearing. Uh, the third eye interview with Nico he, Mastarotti. He, he's he's our only Martin Day hero who died drinking. <laughs> <laughs> hey, appropriate appropriate end for him in a bar <laughs> with a bunch of American naval men in a contest. Uh, well, that's probably why so, he's probably trying to drink him. Oh man, I got something else. Yeah. Uh, I have another friend who's a really big Oliver Reed fan, and I was like, you know, it, it wouldn't it be great to like sit in a bar with Oliver Reed and Klaus Kinski and just see what happens. <laughs> well, I, I want to add t- Tom Hardy. I got my suspicions about Tom Hardy. <laughs> the more the more I see about Tom Hardy the last few years, I'm like, I, I'm starting to peg him as like our our Oliver Reed today. It was kind of like when they were talking recently on George Kennedy just passed on. I mean, Nico talks good about him, too. He's like, yeah, you know, he was always professional, even though he was loaded. Uh, but, you know, yeah, big booze hound actors from the old days. Uh, yeah, uh, loads of fun. Definitely enjoy all those people. But um, anyway, get back to Chang Che. Uh, one you definitely have to speak to is The Five Deadly Venoms, uh, which is yes. probably, honestly, it's probably the greatest kung fu film ever made. Uh, it's really moody, it's atmospheric, it's dark, it's super comic booky. 
the head of the Poison Clans dies, so he sends his final student to check on his prior pupils. Because he figures, you know, they're probably up to no good considering the way they were and what he taught them. Uh, they form this a whole bunch of, like, strange alliances and rivalries, and there's a lot of mystery and intrigue. It becomes almost Edgar Wallace-like, like, who's killing who and why and you know, what's going down here before you get to the end of the film. Fantastic film. I can't recommend it enough. It's always been one of my favorites. This one, Challenge of the Masters, and uh, I can't remember what the hell the other. Oh, Kid with a Golden Arm. Those were the ones that I kept on tape since the 80s that are like these nice prints from the VHS before I ended up getting on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, fantastic, fantastic film. I can't, like I said, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, there's a reason it's legendary. Um, Invincible Shaolin. Uh, then he does Cripple Avengers, which over here, strangely, is released as uh, Return of the Five Daily Venoms, probably for PC reasons. Uh, this guy, I, wouldn't, I didn't really want to watch it originally because I'm like, these crippled Avengers. I don't want to see people get maimed and stuff. But this guy has his family killed, right? So his son's hand gets cut off by his enemies, right, before he catches them. So he makes the kid a steel hand, and all of a sudden he goes from being sympathetic to being a fucking, like, monster villain in, like, six seconds flat because they're, like, <laughs> PC crowd levels of sensitive about the kid having an iron hand. So anybody that, like, looks at him cross-eyed, you know, any villager looks him funny, whatever, a few local fighters call him, he goes and kills him and does a little crazy show. Okay, you, oh, you think I have an iron hand? I didn't say anything. Oh, here's your eye. Ah! And, and, insane. Like, what the fuck are they doing? <laughs> so a couple of local fighters come and say, yeah, you know, you're, you're a shithead. And other guys actually don't even do that. They're like, yeah, you know, he was right. You know, I, I support that guy. He wasn't a bad guy for calling you on that. So they go and start maiming them. So the toad gets deaf and made mute. Another guy got blinded. Another one's feet get cut off. Another one who patronizes their workplace. Because they say, okay, nobody go to these guys now. You're going to make them starve. So he's like, oh, I don't believe in this. Whoever who put this edict up, I don't know nothing about them. I'm just wandering through town. Here, I'll, I'll here fix my sword or whatever. So they don't like that. So they take him and they invite him up to his place. And they tighten this metal ring around his head, and somehow this makes him stupid. So for the rest of the movie, he's like, ha, 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 jumping around like an idiot, like a five-year-old kid. It really gets ridiculous. Um, the rest of the film is the four of these guys that got maimed and the one guy that made stupid banding together despite their infirmities to take these shitheads down. There's lots of comedy despite the way it sounds. Uh, from the one who's like an idiot child, yeah, she does some really funny shit in the middle of it. The fighting things he manages to do while being a moron. And some amazing acrobatics and fight choreography that almost go to loud kind of lung levels. It's a lot better than it deserves to be. A film like this should be like, what the hell? You, know, you, you throw this thing in the garbage. But it actually is really entertaining if you can get past some of the, wow, did they really just do this and why? <laughs> uh, <laughs> then he goes and straightens things out a little bit and gets a little more you know, normal after that insanity. Uh, those two really good ones in a row. Ten Tigers of Kwantung. Uh, T-Lung, yeah. there's a bunch of rebels against the Qing. They meet up at T-Lung's pawn shop, and he hides the rebel leader there, right? So there's all this plotting and scheming and lots of nighttime fights and choreography on these gorgeous sets. Uh, Alexander Fusheng's in it. Most of the Venoms are in it. Really good film. Then he does The Kid with the Gold Norm, which I had mentioned. It's one of my favorites. I kept it since the 80s uh, on VHS, like I said. Uh, another all-time classic. This one's about a government shipment of gold being escorted. Check this one out. How, like, you know, Bernie Sanders is this. They got a shipment of gold from the government being escorted to help out citizens who are starving in a famine. When are you ever going to hear something like this? So that's why I'm like, 
you know, okay, there's some weird things about his films, but I really got to wonder. I mean, Cheng Chi must have had some kind of thing screwed on right in his head. <laughs> yeah, at least his politics aren't aren't like screwed up. Did you uh, say Bernie Sanders? Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, so. While they're doing this, of course, the gold's being shipped, there's this gang of colorful crooks with gimmicks. You know, golden arm, silver spear, iron robe, my favorite, brass head. Some guy's got like a stupid thing on his forehead. Uh, <laughs> and flashy costumes who've got other ideas about the gold. So they hand the escorts their ass. They kill one of, one of them after, after – excuse me, one of them after another off through traps and ambushes and all kinds of crazy shit. One wandering good guy steps in just to save the day. He saves the ingrate escort's life from the poisonous sand palm by putting him in an oven and making him sweat it out. And his girlfriend's like beating him all the time and calling him a bastard because she thinks he's trying to kill him, uh, but really saving his life. So in the end, everybody dies except her, and the goal can go on to help the people. Again, depressing as shit, but fantastic movie. Definitely right up there with Five Deadly Venoms. Same idea, same kind of the monster. Um... You know, he does a bunch of them with Flag of Iron was pretty good. Uh, Brave Archer and his mate, he did about four Brave Archer movies. They're mm. really strange. This was the fourth and last. They're all interlocked, like the Journey of the West films that Homing Wan was doing. Makes zero sense. Yeah. Spends a lot of time referencing clips from prior movies, but in the beginning, it's actually still pretty cute. It's just, I don't know what the hell. I don't know. I'm not sure where they're going with this. I would have to see them all, and unfortunately, to the date, only two of them are on DVD. I don't know why. The first and the last. Um, and the first one kind of sucks. Uh, House of Traps is loads of fun. Not as good as it sounds from the title, but it's fun. Uh, Five Element Ninjas. You know, some jerk challenges a rival martial arts school, right? He gets his ass handed to him, so he calls in a Japanese samurai. The samurai beats one of the fighters and talks him into killing himself because it's the manly thing to do when you lose. So the guy goes and does it. Another fighter hands the samurai his ass, gets him to kill himself, but now you got to fight a bunch of fucking ninjas for doing that. I mean, it's just you can't win in these movies. Uh, but, you know, and it's crazy. they got, like, the Earth Clan. They pop up behind, like, um, you know, trees and stuff like that. They're high behind stumps. And the Water Clan, and they come jumping up through the river or whatever. they got, like, little reeds they breathe through, and they jump up in the air. The Fire Clan. You know, it, it's ridiculous, but it's still pretty fun. Uh, like I said, talk about petulant children. Uh, so, yeah, there's the rest of the movie. That these water, earth, fire, wooden, air ninjas with color-coded outfits kill off a bunch of these guys before they finally find a Chinese guy who used to be a, quote, Chinese ninja <laughs> to train them in the art of ninjutsu so that they can beat these ninjas. It makes no sense whatsoever, but it's it's a lot of fun. It's very visual. Uh, and then it kind of dies off. There's like two more films, like The Weird Man, Shanghai 13, and then that's it. So this is what we're leading up to before. What killed the Kung Fu film? Well, I honestly think that it was Alexander Fusheng, Xiao Ho, as much as I like him, Jackie Chan, and the Kung Fu comedy thing, because that took over. It was the same thing as with the Spaghetti Western, when they had those endless like Trinity films and all those Bud Spencer, Terrence Hill films. Uh you know, it became self-parodic. They, they were out there enough that they couldn't take themselves seriously anymore. Uh, they also brought back the fantasy elements of the Wuja films, but they started combining it with like Choi Hark, you know, that rapid edit, you know, wire foo sort of thing. So you started getting things like Holy Flame of the Martial Arts World. It's entertaining, but it's not an old school kung fu film. It's really pointing right towards if it isn't already a modern Hong Kong kung fu film. It's something else. And honestly, it's not half as good. It's not half as entertaining. Uh, well, well, I think I think you 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 uh, you 
you are on the right track as far as your own visualization and interpretation of what you think killed it. I just think too much, too much. I think as much as the fan base was, you know, like, God, fucking African, all my African-American friends, all my black friends back in the day loved Kung Fu stuff, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, like finding white guys who love Kung Fu stuff is more than black guys was difficult. So it was like, you know, it was like we were far and few in between, you know, white guys <laughs> liking Kung Fu movies. Well, well, where I grew up, but it was like all my black friends, like they were the guys. They taught me, like, hey, this is the one to watch, dude. I'm like, okay. Um, but you know, you're onto something here. But I have to disagree. I see what you're saying, especially about the 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 parodic films, like especially maybe the Jackie Chan ones. And it's not Jackie Chan's fault, you know. But I I, I think that it was just too much. We can only do the same thing for so many years before we have to change. And this is at the period where Jackie Chan, you know, he's he's like starting out um, comical. I, I I think he was trying to find his footing. I think that the people he was working with were trying to think, what are we? What can we do with this guy? Because what works well with him? Because he's a unique. It's a and unique personality. It's not just Jackie Chan. I'm not blaming him specifically. No, it's not just he was Jackie a major Chan. force. No, of course it's, not. Like no. I mentioned, exactly. you got Xiao Ho was already not... doing this. You got Fu Sheng was already doing this. You know, they're out there. They were making these films. People, these directors. No, that they were, yeah, exactly. I agree with you. I th- but I also think that a part of this thing is also uh, uh, part of this is also uh, endemic to what was actually going on in Hong Kong at the time. You know, we're making these fantasy films, these costume films, but I think, you know, uh, crime was a big issue. And I think they decided to slightly segue into modern-day films and uh, to represent, actually, you know, it's like everything. You know, like uh, all the Hercules, Sword and Sandal, the other things we love so much. It's like at some point people get tired of that and they want to see something actually represent the world they're living in, which is like interesting, like um, like like the Marvel pictures, you know, which started yeah. very fantastical. Which, if you saw the Winter Soldier, the the, the last Captain America film, yes. it's starting to be very political. It's yes. starting to be very close to the world we're actually living in. So it's like everybody knows things have to change, and I think probably the the they just said after six hundred pictures in this costume Milu, we have to start. You know, maybe who knows? Maybe the box office is starting to drop off too. You know, hey, what makes money? The producers are happy. If the producers aren't happy, the movies aren't making money. Money, but there's a fan base that's still not making money. So, what's going on? Okay, so maybe we have to start making contemporary pictures, which yeah. is probably why the earliest ones featured a lot of our our martial arts favorite actors. And you know, it's a chicken and the egg thing. What came first here? Because, like I mentioned, it's the same thing that happened in spaghetti westerns. You had all the serious yeah. stuff, and all of a sudden, all you saw was these bad comedies. I mean, one or two of them were funny, but most of them just kind of sucked. 
and it it was kind of a sign of the devolution of the entire genre, yeah. and then it went away not long afterwards. Now, was yeah. it caused by the comedy? Was it exacerbated by the comedy? No. Was the comedy a reflection of the fact that it was going away and people were getting sick of it? Who the hell knows? No. But nonetheless, it is a very direct correlation. This happened and it was going away. Same thing happened here. Um, also, uh, in the early to mid-80s, like I was mentioning about the 82 to 84, traditional of already significantly comedy-filled short films like the second and third 36 Chamber films, My Young Auntie, the, and the more serious five-element ninja films like Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, they're still being produced, but they're mm. simultaneous now. They're no longer exclusive. They're being produced at the same time as 90s Hong Kong film craze wirework films like, you know, like I mentioned, The Holy Flame of the Martial Arts World, Aces Go Places, Yes, Madam, the early Choi Hark films. They're being made at the exact same time as Eight Diagram Pole Fire, Five Element Ninjas, you know, My Young Yanti. Um, people forgot the serious, you know, 70s style short kung fu thing, and they started getting tired of the lame comedy at the same time. So they started moving on well, to a new decade in style, and that's when we got. Subject for we start into a much bigger kettle of fish here, right? You know, exactly. You know, we, but this is yeah, we get much. We're talking uh, with the Aces Go Places movies. We're talking about the resurgence of the interest in Bond movies, which never went away, but maybe it was always big box office in nature, and maybe they were looking at the next big money maker. And yeah, and like start, I said. Once we start yeah. getting into those kind of films, we're talking about another show because now we're talking about Hong Kong cinema, which is like the stuff that came from that period going into the 90s, which became a huge right, thing sure. here in the 90s, into the 2000s, I guess. It's our sequel show. <laughs> <laughs> Someday. Uh, so is there anything that you wanted to say about any of what we discussed tonight? Anything that you need to get out? No, I, I, th- I, think, I, think, I think we got it covered. Yeah. All right. So uh, next week... Uh, we'll be talking even darker shadows uh, coming off of his hit transformation of gothic soap opera Dark Shadows from a, a vaguely Rebecca-esque turn-of-the-century gothic into an all-out monster fest. Dan Curtis produced, uh, proceeded to both theatrical release like House and Night of Dark Shadows and a decade-long run as the king of TV movie horror. Uh, often in partnership with Richard Matheson, Curtis would not only tackle adaptations of traditional horror classics like Jack on High, Dracula, Dorian Gray, Frankenstein, The Turn of the Screw, but create several of his own with efforts like you know, The Night Stalker, The Night Strangler, The Norless Tapes, Scream of the Wolf, Dead of Night, Burn Offerings, Trilogy of Terror. So join us as we delve into some decidedly dark and shadowy areas of the televised medium as we talk the heyday of Dan Curtis Productions, even darker shadows, Dan Curtis in the 70s. So that's next week. Um, anything else uh, you wanted to say? Oh, I hope you enjoyed this show. Um, it actually gave us ideas while we were doing this show for other shows, it which always is does. always really cool. <laughs> and <laughs> and yeah, Dan Curtis shows can be interesting because it's it's uh, there there are movies I really love there, and you know the Doc Shows uh, conversation will I'm sure be enlightening. And yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to get into Dark Shadows entirely because that's a show unto itself. Uh, but we certainly could, you know. I've, I've seen them. I've seen the entire series at least twice, and then we got that huge box set, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Sure. Anybody that has it, holy crap! You yeah, could, you think you, you could buy a house with that box set, right? It, well, that's the thing. We we got it on the cheap. That's why it took forever to get it. We had washed it twice over, you know, using old whatever and stuff. And then we finally ended up getting this thing. And 
you know, nowhere near its price. Trust me. Did you get the up. DVDs? Yes. Uh, See, my buddy, a buddy, a good friend of mine, he bought all the VHS from MPI. God knows oh, how gosh. long it took. Yeah, see, and I mean, those were all... Like, very, the MPI VHS tapes were so bloody expensive. They were. What did they he were. do after that? He bought the DVDs. <laughs> those things, you know, I had them off of TV and rent them at dollar videos and stuff yeah. like that back in the day. So thank God I didn't spend any money on that crap. But... Uh, when we finally had seen this thing twice through, all of a sudden it dropped down to a really nice price point that was probably about 40% of what its total price was. Oh, uh, good for you. And it's still damn expensive compared to what it is. But this thing, we didn't expect it. It's when, you know, I figured it was going to be like you know, the usual when you get a big box set like the Avengers set or something, you know, whatever, 15 DVDs or something. Holy <sighs> shit. This thing. <laughs> it like is, 300 DVDs? Uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, not not that many DVDs, or, or at least not that many cases, let's put it that way. But it is. It yeah. comes in a giant coffin, and it comes up past your waist. I'm like, I can't believe this thing. It's enormous. Really? It's, like, it's as big as, like, an, an old 70s TV. I mean, what the hell? I couldn't even figure where to store it. I had to leave it on the floor in one spot and just put stuff on top of it. Like, yeah, so it's it's enormous. Uh, so, like I said, that would be a, a show. Oh, you got, you got to take a picture of this thing and send it to me. <laughs> now, well, we can definitely talk Dark Shadow sometime. I, you know, I'm certainly an aficionado. Yeah, but couple... for next week's show, we just touch on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly right. So, I, I, I actually have some gay friends that are really into it. So, <laughs> course, we could bring people on just to talk about this if they if they're interested. <laughs> but oh, yeah, cool. I mean, amazing uh, show, an amazing series. But anyway, yeah, next week we'll basically we'll just like mention it in passing and move on to the other stuff. I'm sure. Uh. So, yeah, I mean, if that's it, I guess we will wrap this one up. Anything else you want to thank get you out of? Listening? Yeah. No, All no, right, thank so. you for listening. I hope you enjoy your Shore Brothers show. Uh, we'll probably follow us up with more Asian stuff in the near future. And uh, keep Kung Fu fighting. That's right. I, I wish I had Carl Lewis to play right now. Everybody was Kung Fu. <laughs> All right, so thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat and show up with films. Next week, we talk Dan Curtis in the 70s. If you'd like to contact us here, comment, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, let like to join us on air. Uh, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. Weird Scenes is at the Goldmine, brought to you by the Papa Online Network. I'm Blanc. Go great.
What's in store for your business this week at Staples? Doing business like a CEO while saving like a CFO. Staples has all the supplies you need to run your business like a boss at prices that'll make your bookkeeper smile. Now that is an achievement. Everything from markers and pens to 2019 desk calendars. And right now, a 12-pack of Sharpie markers and an 8-pack of Expo dry erase markers are only $4.99 each. At Staples, where there's a whole lot in store. Ends one nineteen nineteen in store only.